0: We have various access points where we have the options that um, are throughout the quarter, and for each interchange we do also have various options that we will be considering. The point of this slide is basically to demonstrate that overall we are working with our transit um, elements as well as park and ride and our TDM strategies and bike ped facilities as well. Um, we will then be evaluating all of that based on public comment, and that is a very important um, segment to that, and then hopefully getting to a preferred alternative late this summer. One of the things that we have been busy doing is having outreach. Um, we've had over 119 meetings um, with various stakeholders, um, congressional leaders, um, local and state Um, officials, as well as meeting directly with the affected property owners, um, meeting with special interest groups, and just really being out in the community, um, getting the message out and making sure that everyone is aware of what is going on. One of the issues that the Secretary brought up last week was making sure that those property owners don't come to our meetings and then that's the first time that they're aware of what's going on. We have meetings now scheduled with all impacted residents that would potentially have a total take to their house. Um, so we will be meeting with a group of folks on Thursday, actually, to discuss that. We have launched our website, and we've actually had over 1,000 um, emails that we've received and a discussion board that we are constantly corresponding with interested citizens throughout the process. As we went out to the public, we heard several things, several key points that they were concerned about. One, of course, was the right-of-way and them asking us to minimize our footprint as much as possible. This is one of the concerned areas that we have on the screen. This is near the Dunlorn Woods and Dunlorn Village area. Um, We were able to minimize, um, through our preliminary design um, strategies, minimize the impact on this particular neighborhood. We actually shifted the flyover ramp and we were able to um, eliminate the in- impact to a townhome community in that area. The other significant thing that the project team has been working on is the stormwater management ponds. There were 12 um, residential displacements associated with stormwater management ponds and we were um, able to eliminate those impacts so therefore that took actually 12 total displacements off the table, and those people will remain in their homes. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to minimize all of the impacts. As you will see, there's a lot of strip takings that we will – we still have along the project area. Um, In the Dunloring um, Woods area, we do have strip taking um, in that area um, as a result of the lanes on 66 coming off of 495. Um, Near Gallows Road, we have five homes that potentially will be total um, relocations in that particular area, and those are the five homes that we will be meeting with. This is a chart that shows the significant work that the team has been doing to not only minimize the total take, but also the strip takes. There's over um, 1,288 parcels along the 25-mile corridor of 66. And we are working diligently to, as the Secretary said, to get that down to zero. Whether we'll be able to do that, that's our goal, and to make that happen. So when we first started this project, it basically was uh, at least 35 to um, 32 homes that were going to be displaced. Now we're down to between 18 and 11 homes that will be displaced. But we're still working on that to minimize that as much as possible. Transit is also another critical element to this project. Um, Without the transit support, um, we cannot have an effective multimodal solution on I-66. We are still pursuing and working with our project team on enhanced bus service throughout the quarter, new and expanded park and ride lots, as well as TDM strategies. And we've been working with Fairfax County and Prince William County on their bike pet facilities as well. So this is where we are. Um, a couple of very exciting meetings coming up um, next week. We have our official NEPA public hearing starting on May 27th and 28th. We have another meeting um, scheduled for two other meetings scheduled the following week, um, June 2nd and 3rd. And that is the opportunity for the public to come out and give us their input on the project. The format for that public hearing, will, we will have a brief presentation followed by public comment. Um, we will not take um, Q&A at that time. We will have an open forum style, so therefore the public can have their questions answered. So these are the dates and the um, times locations of those meetings that we will be having. Um, we look forward after we get the public comment, we will package that and present a, a preferred alternative to the Commonwealth Transportation Board either in July or September. This is our website and we ask folks to continue to visit us and to, to continue to give us their input in, in this project. Thank you.
1: Okay, any, um any, qu- yeah, Mr. Williams. Just a quick one. So, until we've got their, their best alternative presented to us, we're not, we're not even tackling the issue of how to pay for it.
2: Of how to, sorry? How to pay for it. Uh, no, we're, they're, they're going down parallel paths. Okay. Yeah, they are. And I'm going to explain that to you in just a good. few minutes. But yes, um, uh, but there is a difference between the project and the financing sure. of the project. Now, do they overlap some? Yes, and uh, I'll explain how that may happen and how I'm viewing it so. But um, we have continued moving forward with project development. Uh, obviously, we have a lot more depending on how we decide to procure it, whether it's uh, uh, in design build or whatever, but I mean a lot more to go. But um, they're working through the environmental process. And, of course, as you know how that works, you start with a, a uh, an area – and you try to you know, work down through there, and so uh, that's what they're working on now. And Mr. Dyke, yeah, I just
3: uh, I know we're going to have a whole lot of discussion on 66, but I thought it was important, especially since you talked about the outreach component, uh, to commend VDOT, the folks up here in Northern Virginia, especially Renee and Helen and her team. They have been very, very responsive. Uh, the three CTB members up here have gotten a lot of communication, and we passed them on to VDOT, and they've followed up met with folks and sent representatives to the meetings, and I just wanted to publicly thank you for the good work that you folks have done, at least on the, on the outreach and communicating with folks.
0: I thank it. you. I'll pass that on to the team as well. Yeah, yeah probably, uh, it's true on any project,
2: but this one especially, without local support of elected officials, uh, without public outreach, uh, and coming to some consensus, and I'm not naive enough to think we're going to have 100 percent of people agreeing, but the consensus is extremely important. And that's why we've been delivered in the process of both the project and how we're going to talk about procuring the project. Any other comments from Ms. Hamilton? Thank okay, you. thank you, Renee. Um, this next part I've decided I'm going to do myself, and I, I'll tell you why. It's because um, I promised you uh, that I would, uh, you would be privy to all the information I'm privy to in making decisions. So I think I'm going to go up to the lectern here and go through this, but I want to take you today the process that I have gone through working with Governor McCullough on looking at the various options uh, so that when you come to vote, um, you will have background information uh, unlike some of the other uh, projects that we've had to deal with uh, in the past. Just give me a minute I'll come up here. Can we remove the, uh, the laptop and just close it up? Does that mess up the screen or anything? Can I advance on the down
4: there?
1: Uh, we have your presentation on our
2: screen? It's going to be coming up on the screen. I don't think it's going to be to your link. They just got it up this morning. It'll be on the screen up there. But I'll make sure you all get hard copies or anybody that wants them and do, uh, so to move this forward, just hit the, where's
3: clicker?
2: Okay, so as I said, uh, what I want to accomplish today is taking you through the thought process and the analysis that's been um, going on for the last several months uh, in terms of how we're looking at this project. Now, I-66 in some ways uh, just uh, happened to be the next one up because knowing um, uh, that the next P-3 and the Commonwealth, or if we're considering that procurement, based on some of the things that we've been dealing with over the last uh, 15 months, I think a good public discussion and debate uh, as to uh, the uh, advocacies Benefits and the risk associated with doing different procurements was necessary. Now, you as CTV members don't actually pick the procurement. You get the, but you have to vote to put money on the procurement if we go there. So, the way this works is you'll have to vote to put procurement uh, monies on it. Uh, It's really up to the procuring agency and the administration to to choose the the, uh, preferred procurement uh, uh, method. Uh, that will be Charlie Kilpatrick and Ms. Uh, um, Mitchell here will be uh, making a recommendation working with the uh, uh, Transportation Secretary's office, uh, if, particularly if it goes the private, private partnership route. If it goes that route, it doesn't come back to you to, uh, to approve the contract. But under House 1886, the new rules, House Bill 1886, I have to certify that it's in the uh, uh, public's best interest that the contract perform, but if we go another route, the contract would come back to you for approval, inside. So I want to make clear you understand what your role is, because I think as I go through here, there's been some either some misunderstandings or some revisionist history on some previous things as to what's a P3 and what's not a P3, and when I want to make it clear. Uh, but uh, you approve every contract uh, except for those that run through the public-private partnership. Yes, Mr. I
5: Just one question. You know, the, the, Under the new guidelines, there are touch points. There are touch points, so that's a right. There's B3 process where CTV uh, receives information, and I want to say, Mark, you might want to help me out, we do vote on some
2: you, uh, you have, at the end of the day, and those are guidelines... The law doesn't require you to have to sign off. I've made the commitment I'm going to update you and seek your input. But the law doesn't require you. It does require you outside of a public-private partnership. I want to point, that's one of the reasons we worked very hard on House Bill 1886.
5: Right, but we're not, we're not going to not follow the guidelines of the first project
2: out. No, <laughs> no, we're not. In fact, we're going to follow the law of the first project out, okay, I, but I'm pointing out to you what the legal requirements are. Okay. And, and there are guidelines and there are laws and the legal requirements are so that you have an understanding of what your role is. I've also committed to you and I may have to do this in public session. If we ever discuss proprietary information, we would have to go into closed session. Nothing I'm going to discuss today is proprietary. Nothing's going to be discussed. So, and as I said, in a way, the next project that came up to be considered was going to have to have this public debate, I believe, to make sure that the Commonwealth understands what it does when it enters into these type of contracts. Now, there was an uh, op-ed that was uh, run in the uh, Washington Post, I think yesterday, or, I, or today? Yes. Yeah, no, the, the Post, I think, or uh, anyway,
4: an editorial, an
2: op-ed, not the piece on 66, but an op-ed where I summarized what we've been doing the last 15 months in policy. Coming on the hills of House Bill 2313, we felt it important, when Governor McCall took office, that we put stewardship at the very top of the list of how we move forward. The legislature took the courageous vote to increase revenues, to use them wisely, was incumbent, we felt, upon us to make sure that happened. So first thing last year, House Bill 2 came into being. House Bill 2, which depicts uh, and now gives the CTB a prioritization process and a statewide competition and a scoring to determine what are the right projects to be funded across the Commonwealth. The whole idea is to get some of the politics out of this. So House Bill 2, you've worked hard on the last year. Mr. Donahue has led many of those efforts. We're getting ready, you're going to review this afternoon, some actual scoring of projects. Um, But it's to be used as a tool for you to determine how best to allocate the scarce funds we have. So that's one thing that we started with. Following on this year, we added two more pieces of legislation. House Bill 1887 continued the governance that we were looking for. We, for the first time, have aligned the needs of the Commonwealth with the funding streams. and We get away with the old 40-30 uh, formula, and now state of good repair is right off the top. And we recognize the need to get money to the districts much more quickly instead of it having up here all us to decide every one of those. So state of good repairs monies go right to districts, and the remaining monies are split 50-50 between the districts and the state in determining which projects to be funded. But they both, whether it's at the local or the state process, uh, are to be scored and competitively um, uh, looked at. So every dime we spend going forward is either going to be asset managed by VDOT or you're going to have a scoring process for you to look at to determine, help you make some objective measures uh, in determining how to use this funding. On top, the bill also made this board more independent. These are hard decisions. They deserve a public debate and you should be free to vote what you think is right. We're not looking for rubber stamps. So from now on, actually effective July the 1st, but we're not going to just, Mr. President, say not not obey a rule that we actually put in or a law. But you can only be removed from this board for cause, not for a vote that some politician or some governor or some secretary doesn't like. So I'm asking you to vote your conscience and what you think is right. The third thing this law did is it recognized the importance of multimodal solutions every big project we do is unique the solutions for both what renee described as the transportation solutions are different and so is the risk the risk is different on every project and they should be looked at individually there is no cookie cutter multimodal solutions are going to be i believe the way we're going to move these projects forward this bill recognized we had a funding issue with multimodal solutions and bought monies to do that. I remind people it it did not reduce one absolute dollar to any other program, but it recognized the increase in dollars to make sure that transit and other multimodal functions are also available for you to make decisions. So that was House Bill 1887. And, of course, what I'm going to talk a lot about today, House Bill 1886, and that is the revision of our guidelines and the law we passed for accountability and, and transparency in private-public partnerships. The law requires now an independent board, not the same people who said it's a good project and are going to deliver it, but an independent advisory steering committee made up of two members from your, this group, and I've asked Mr. Fralin and Mr. Kasperis to be the members on that committee, uh, a member from Secretary Brown, Sec- uh, uh, from finance, one of his deputies. I've asked Nick to serve as my representative on that, my deputy. It also has two members from the legislature, or the staff for House uh, and, and Senate Transportation or the money committees, however they decide to go on there, and then the CFO of the procuring agency. In this particular case, it will be VDOT. So an independent review of how to finance the projects. And so that will now be a decision that I will look to to help give guidance. In fact, the law requires, if it is a P3, public-private partnership, it must affirmatively say it's in the best interest of the common law. So, it's, so to get that, this committee's got to say, yes, we agree with it. Now, the other part of this is it now makes us look at risk, and if we identify A high-risk project, then we've got to mitigate it in the contract. Now, that makes sense to me. My background is, you know, in business and all, but that didn't happen on some of the previous P3s we did. And I know a lot of people are saying 460 was a P3, wasn't a P3. It was procured as a P3. All the way through, it was a P3. You didn't vote on that contract. The CTB didn't vote. It was totally done as a P3. And yet, we missed the whole risk of the, uh, the environmental risk on that project. So this law says if you identify that, then you've got to mitigate it in the contract. And finally, what I think is the most important, and I see it as both uh, a control and an absolute you know, great benefit, is that the Secretary of Transportation and the procuring agency, once the deal was signed, if we do a public-private partnership, must certify that the original finding of public interest that the steering committee said is what we actually accomplished. Now, let me give you an example. I think if we have a multimodal solution where transit is supposed to be a big part of it, and we get to the end and say we can't do transit in this P3, that has to be changed. That would require me to say there's a material change, and therefore we must procure the project differently. Not talking about how long the project is or scoping in terms of that, but if you materially change a solution to the transportation, that would require a different a different procurement. I could not certify that going forward. I think that does two things. I think it it takes the, you know now governors or the executive branch know you can't ramrod things through, but quite frankly. Um, It gives me the benefit not only of knowing that, or the secretary, but also in negotiating, I know what the parameters are. I know where we are. Because every other procurement method we have, design, bid, build, design, build, there are uh, safeguards built in, and I'll go through those. um, uh, Now, some may say those safeguards make you less efficient. Could be. But it's the way... We protect ourselves from risk. And in P3, those are suspended, and we need to make sure we evaluate the risk appropriately. So that's the background as we come into this discussion. Now, I'm going to take you through, first, Governor McCullough's, uh, our philosophy and then the Thought Press House I got there. Uh, I mentioned my background as I'm a CPA and have a business background. My first job was given to me uh, by Senator Stosh. He wasn't a senator at that time. I went to work as an accounting firm, Gary Stosh Walls. You all may know a Senator Stosh is the person who basically is credited with doing the P3 legislation. So I have worked closely with him on what I'm going to go through here. So I just want to point out that, uh, you know, this is not me doing something out in the void. Work closely with him and others in looking at how we should approach and what he believed to be the way the law should be interpreted, the way it should have been used. So you combine that with uh, my CTB experience, where I went through some of these others, many of you did, and let me just start off by saying the end result of this is that a P3 procurement is another procurement method. It is not an ideology that we're going to subscribe to. It's going to be driven on the facts and the numbers, and if we think the P3 is in the best interest, you will find nobody more supportive than Governor McAuliffe and myself. But on the other hand, we're just not going to blindly do it unless we understand the risks and understand where we're negotiating from. Uh, let me start with this slide then. So I cannot tell you uh, 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 that the most important thing as I started is our fiduciary responsibility to taxpayers. Now. When we just mentioned, back in, November, in, in February, when we started looking at this because we were starting the uh, P3 and VDOT and DRPT were starting to to um, uh, go down the path and we were looking at alternatives, they were doing their due diligence. When we just mentioned that we might look at other alternatives, then a bunch of people go apoplectic. I mean, you know, I mean, now I get that. I quite get that with lobbyists and I get that uh, with chambers of commerce. They're actually doing what they should be doing out there for their client. I don't get it from some of the politicians. I don't get it. Uh, because, quite frankly, our investors are our taxpayers. And let me give you some examples we dealt with this year. When we go in and talk about this courageous act of putting in new revenues in the system, all we heard was, and, and rightly so, we got to make sure these are precious dollars to our our taxpayers, we want to make sure we're doing it right. We don't want to raise this without making it right. Same thing when we start spending them. Why would you advocate for something until you know all the numbers? I don't understand that. Same people that are advocating for this were in my office saying we've got to buy back the Dulles Greenway. We made a bad deal. We've got to mitigate downtown, midtown tunnel tolls. We made a bad deal. You can't have it both ways. We've signed a contract. is the best way to deal with that is make sure of what you're doing before you actually enter the contract? That's what this is about. I want to make sure we understand the risk, both short-term and long-term risk of it. There is no predetermined outcome. I will stand right here and say I'm going to end this conversation by saying we would like to have a private partner on this deal. But it will be based on facts and not ideology. So that's, that's the whole premise of what this is really going to. Now, um, the public-private partnerships, we believe, are a great procurement tool. You will not find it, probably a more business-oriented governor or secretary of transportation combination, I bet, if you look in the history of the Commonwealth. I'm not trying to be self-effacing. I'm just pointing out the truth. Both the governor and I come from business backgrounds. Maybe that's part of the caution. Maybe that we know that risk is real, and we ought to understand what that risk is costing us or what we're giving up to obtain it. But we believe private uh, partnerships, public partnerships, are key going forward. And if this one is or isn't, it doesn't mean the next one shouldn't be. So I want to make clear that we are very, very supportive, and I'll go through all the policy and, and other risks as we go through here, but I want to make clear That's where the governor and I are coming from. But I don't know how we can do that without considering all the options before making decisions. If you were making an investment decision, you would start from, well, I would get ready to say the federal government has no risk, but actually I should use the state of Virginia because we have a higher credit rating than they do, triple A credit rating. But you'd start to say this is no risk, and then you'd look at alternatives, That included a sharing of that risk or higher return. Same here. I don't know how we can understand how we're giving up risk without looking at a baseline if we decide to do it ourselves, what the risk we're taking, so that we can then have some objective quantification if we decide to share those risks. So that's, again, here. Same thing that you would do, anybody else would do, if they truly were looking at an objective analysis of risk. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that and I'll take you through it. You can start from over here, which what we have tended to do. This is a and I say, you know, public private partnership and here's where we think it's going to come out. And then you start discounting to say, well, if you did it yourself, you know, here's the discount you'd have to do. Well, that's one way to do it, except you bias how you're going to the outcome. I like to look at separate accounting and here's what I think this is and this is and compare. Many times they're the same, many times they're not. If you, my training as an accountant is either inductive or deductive reasoning, and I tend to like deductive reasoning, where you're starting from a basis on each and you make the two, not starting someplace and trying to justify one way or the other. We also said we're going to be transparent and accountable to public and elected officials, and this is going to start with that. We're going to lay everything out here today, how we got to where we think we are, so that we can begin to have a discussion as to how we should proceed going forward. And, back to Mr. Cohen's point, I want to, uh, we're going to embrace the reforms of House Bill 1886 and other legislation. I don't see how we cannot do that, even though I know people have said, well, this started under the old rules. Uh, that, that's like saying, you know, you know you've, you've done a bad deal, but you can't do anything that you could fix. We're not going to do that. Now, before we get into, let me, let me keep one thing in mind, and I mentioned it when with Renee was up here. There is a difference between the deal and the financing and it's been my experience that if you have a good deal, bad financing can mess it up. but if you have a bad deal, I don't care how good the financing is you can't fix it. and I just that, I, now these overlap but I think you have to understand that's really if you're making a decision the deal let me go back to 460. We've heard a lot of criticism about the structure of 460 and all that, and I'm not suggesting it is the best structure by any stretch of all. But the fundamental problem in 460 is we didn't evaluate the risk of the deal for the permit. Whether it was a design-bid build or a P3, that risk was missed. Now I'm going to take you through there, and I believe that it had been a design-bid bill, we would have mitigated it because of the state procurement rules. But we didn't do it in a P-3. It was rushed through, so I'm just pointing out to you that there is a difference. They overlap, but if you make a bad deal, you're not going to save it by financing. And if you make a good deal, you can really mess it up by financing, depending on that. So that's just one thing I'd like you to keep in mind as we go through here. Now, when I looked at this back in February, and I, and I want to first of all point out, I think Doug Coulomay and our P3 department have done a great job on these the, the guidelines and looking at the policy uh, and and other considerations with P3s. Fantastic. Um, and I mentioned this. I was at George Mason University the other day. Doug and I sat next to each other. Uh, and that's who I knew. I wanted somebody because Policy matters in P3s. Policy does matter. And I'm going to take you through some things a little bit later. But if you don't have good policy... You don't have good procedures. You're not going to get good results. Even with them, you may not, but at least you give yourself a better chance. So I want to thank them for for that. But back in February, when we got the initial finding of public interest, and it's very rough and they're still working, but I really questioned some of the assumptions. Not the analysis, the work, but the assumptions. It's back to that deductive versus inductive reasoning. I felt like we were starting from a... A conclusion. I'm not saying it was the wrong one, but we were working back, and I don't think we were trying to justify it. I just think we didn't give ourselves a look at everything. So I asked them to look at some other alternatives. But when I went through those assumptions, here's some of the things that were really apparent in the assumptions: that the private sector is more efficient than DOT in construction and operations and maintenance. Now I tend, and I know Bob, I'm very uh, with a lot of VDOT people here. I tend to agree with that. However, that doesn't necessarily give you the, you know, say that we should automatically do a P3 because there's lots of ways we'll go through different types of P3s to mitigate that risk. Although, let me point out, and I've said this at the Garber Institute the other day when I was the leadership of VDOT, I believe they're one of the best transportation agencies in the country. They're not the same organization they were 10 years ago. They don't build anything. They manage projects. The private sector, no matter what we come out of here on in terms of how we're going to finance this, the private sector is going to build it, and more than likely the private sector is going to operate it. The question is, who's going to finance it? But that's one of the assumptions that that, uh, that I question. The other one is that all private partnerships have similar risk profiles and one size fits all. I could not you – know, I'm not saying our P3 department said that – but if you go back, and I went back and looked at every other P3 deal we did, and if you look at these findings, the risks are pretty similar. How can that be? How can a tunnel in Hampton Roads be the same risk as adding two lanes to 66? I, you know, I'm not suggesting they aren't. I'm not suggesting one's right or the other. I'm just suggesting there is a difference in the risk. And on all these risks, how do you quantify it? If you think VDOT's terrible, how terrible is that? How much money is that? So these are the points I'm sort of, you know, I'm questioning as we go through. The private sector can leverage more resources and result in the lowest public subsidy. I actually think that is absolutely false in that. In fact, uh, what I did, um, I did a lot of research and going through, uh, and we had different people look at things. Um, and um, this, this we went back and looked at a lot of different P3s around the country um, and uh, the, uh, how this could, uh, could come into play and private sector may be willing to take more risk than we are but at the end of the day it's a revenue stream and that revenue stream is going to be supported the debt or whatever it is what it is they might get it better right than us or vice versa but at the end of the day the revenue stream is the revenue stream um, and so I do agree that a concessionaire may provide more risk if they, in determining how much equity to put in. I don't buy. They can always finance the deal cheaper than the, than the, than the government can. And it's the lowest subsidy result, and I'll go through that. And, again, uh, uh, the best deal for taxpayers is the lowest public subsidy. I tend to agree with that, except when you give up, The revenues on the deal, you give up the upside. Now we have limited resources, so I think that particular assumption needs to get a lot of credibility. I mean, if it's a better deal and you don't have the money, it doesn't matter. You can't do the deal. So, uh, but I question if that's the case in every case. And one that I, the last one is that only P3s can receive TIFIA loans is just absolutely untrue. Not only 90 percent of all TIFIA loans last year were granted uh to uh public entities. But on top of that we met directly with the TIFA office. TIFIA loans are supported directly by the, le- the the deal itself, the revenues in the deal. Now that may have been the case several years ago because there was a policy, but that is not the case today. So these are some of the options. Now the back to the last on the on the deal, the the lowest uh taxpayer uh is the lowest subsidy that's back to my original mind, when I first started about if you have a multimodal solution. And we have some very good deals here in the Commonwealth, first admit. But many of them don't include the transit that we originally thought we were going to get. And the state is paying for all that. So you look at the deal and you say, oh, we've leveraged all these great monies. And you have. But the state's paying 100% of the transit. Or the state is disincentivized from increasing transit in the long term, because it impacts that revenue stream. The more HOV usage, the more transit, the less you pay tolls, the less revenue stream. And let me point out, I should also make this, I think every deal negotiated by the, by the, with the private sector, the private sector has done everything and been straight up, I have nothing but praise for the private sector. I do have some issues that I think the state has done, but the private sector is going to do what's in their best interest, and we shouldn't expect them to do anything different. We should not expect them to do anything different. So this is not a criticism at all of the private sector in that regard. So, but these are some of the uh, initial um, assumptions that I had questioned. Now, we did go back and look at um, a P3 versus a couple of different structures. But when I got that analysis, I didn't think it was complete. So what I did is I had not only our P3 office look at it, and they use KPMG, which I uh, think very highly of in terms of the P3 transaction and from that perspective. But I also hired public finance management to look at a public finance deal. And then I had Craig, a third party, go back and look at all the assumptions in those deals and give me some quality control. So I'm not standing up here and say I made all these numbers up. And none of those other entities, got a criticism to them, they didn't know all that was going on. I felt like I needed an independent view from all sides. I approached this deal, as I told the governor, is the way I would use my own money. And by the way, it is my money, and it's your money, and it's everybody else's money. So that's the way I approached the deal. So this is just not out me on the back of the envelope. We've done a lot of detailed analysis with a lot of different groups. So if you go to the next one, the assumptions or evaluating it is, These were the keys behind this. What do we want to accomplish? And in this particular case, it has to be multimodal. I'm convinced that if we don't have a multimodal solution, we don't have uh, the local support, and we don't have a deal. Um, And if you look at the last two deals we've done uh, on 495 Express and the downtown Midtown Tunnel, both deals started with a significant amount of transit to be paid for in the deal. That's not what got done. Again, that's not the private sector's fault, yeah, because they negotiated in good faith. have no issue, but I'm not in that regard. But we cannot do that on 66. I'm convinced we don't have a deal if we don't provide those multimodal solutions. The other thing is, how much does it cost? And this gets into the upfront subsidy and the continuing costs, the capital costs in there. I don't know how you can determine uh, whether to move forward with a procurement if you don't have some idea yourself of what it costs. Whether I'm building a hotel or I'm doing a road project, I think we ought to know what we think it costs. We might be wrong. I suggest we're right. But we ought to have a place where we're negotiating from. How do you frame the deal? And the second is, what are the revenues? And again, they're upfront and continuing revenues. And what's that revenue stream? Again, we may get it completely wrong. Now these assumptions are based on not, not quite investment grade, So we've got some more work to do. And I want to point out, as I get into the numbers, these numbers are going to change. But I think the relative position between the options are going to be about the same, at least based on the financial expertise that we've been given. But I will stay this, and I'll, uh, in that I believe in the ingenuity of the private sector. I believe in that. So that's why when we finish all this, I'm going to put it out there and say, hey, you got a better deal, I'm all ears. I'd like to find another way to do this. I believe in that, but I don't believe in it without you showing me how it works. And the last thing is, what are the risks? Um, And let me point out that a lot of times we think if we do a public-private partnership that we somehow give all those risks to the third party. Now, three main risks are construction, operational, and financial risks. Financial could be the financing, could be the revenue risk. that's really the three big areas that, that we're looking at. Um, but when you really get into the details, and I'm going to read here from uh, the, uh, uh, the, the brief that was given by the, our P3 officer. I think they did a very good job on this. That these are some of the risks that we would retain in a P3. And I think they're right. There would be a sharing. We've got to deal with WMATA. You know, the airport and their airport users. How do we deal with that? Revenue sharing typically comes in on the risk. The cost of acquisition are right away. The state's going to have to retain some of that. Latent defects in existing assets. You know, we're not redoing all 66 as latent defects. Now, that could be shared, but here's some of the ones that would remain with the state. Federal environmental or NEPA approval. We know that's the case on 460. I was on the independent review panel, and the p- private parties made clear they were willing to take no risk on the environment. In fact, they were saying, I'm not taking any risk on the revenue either. And so, but that was, the, the risk there is, that remains with the common one. Um, Public funding. We've still got to come up with our public funding. Makes sense. The base interest rate risk between the commercial close and the financial close. That's some risk that we have typically, that we've taken in the past. The cost of delays by changes in tolling requirements and interoperability standards during construction. We've got to tie in with networks. Um, uh, Compensation events. The ones that come to mind in in the two uh, deals that we've received uh, uh, the most comments on is in the downtown-midtown deal. If we build another competing facility in the next 58 years, and it impacts the traffic on the downtown-midtown facility, There's a compensation event potentially to the Commonwealth. Compensation event. 95 Express lanes, a great project, great partner. But for 60-some years, if our HOB usage gets to a certain level, and they'll tell you right now, and I agree it's out of the money, I don't know if it's going to be for 68 years, we've got to pay 70% of those tolls because we've in fact we've impacted that revenue stream. None of that's wrong. I'm just saying that this thing that all the risks are transferred is not accurate. They're shared. And we ought to make sure we understand what the sharing of the risks are and we're paid. Conversion of HOB2 to HOB3 prior to construction completion date. And, um, of course, if BVOT directs them to do anything. So, which which basically can happen when we look at shipping all the construction risks, I mean, VDOT potentially um, could, could uh, get in the way of all that, too. So whether we do it or somebody else, we do have some risk with that. Look, that's not meant to be all-inclusive. But it is meant to say that it's not a whole amount. We don't transfer all the risk over there. So let me just take you through a quick history of P3s. Because I think it's important for you to understand that in the Commonwealth, we've somehow thought that a P3 has just got to be a total concession. There's a whole lot of risk sharing on a compendium that go, can go on. And so in, in the truest sense of the word, whatever we do on 66 is going to be a P3. It may not be a concession. That's one thing we need to take a look at. But it is going to be a P3. We just celebrated, uh, what is it, 20, 20 years of, uh, I think 20 years of, uh, of the legislation we used to, in the Commonwealth, had bid, uh, build, uh, design, bid, build, or whatever it is, DBB, yeah. And so we took all the risk. The legislation came in for this, but really this, how can we share construction risk? And design builds were the first P3s. And they have since come on to encounter construction risk, project management risk. But that was the first risk sharing that was anticipated, and we do that a lot today, even in every DB we do. But then, as we went on, we found ways that we could help private sector to help us finance. So if you look at, from the left is the public sector doing it all, to the right the private sector and how they can get involved, you can see how the risk is shared. We went to a design-build finance where they brought in and took some risk on the finance. We did to operate and maintain. Design, build, finance, operate, maintain, concessions. Now, the key to point out here is that if you look at the financing, all the way down to the design, build, operate, maintain, that can be done with tax-exempt bond financing. Now, there are some equivalents down below, private activity bonds, but not at the same interest rate, not at the same credit rate. But they can be, there are some equivalents, but at a greater cost. So, if you—that's the, the, the myriad of, of, of things that can be accomplished in a P3. Now, let's go back to 460. 460 was in the box around between design-build finance and design-build-operate-maintain. That's where 460 was. Let's compare it to Route 29. Route 29 was a design-build bid, a design-build. Uh, design, uh, Uh, In that particular case, both cases, we had approval problems. Both cases. And 460, because we're outside of our normal procurement laws, and we were looking for the lowest cost subsidy, we put a lot of money out the door trying to get this job done through a P3 for things that didn't relate to design and and getting the permit. Compare that to 29. contractor was only paid a small amount... For the design and the permitting that didn't come, so we were only about a small amount of money. It gets back to my point to say that in the in the state laws for procurement, there are built-in things to help with risk. In a P3, we're on our own. I'm not saying that's bad because we open up a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, but we are on our own when we go through that in negotiating. Which brings us over to um, this specific deal. And here are the assumptions that we used in this deal. Uh, Renee went through most of them. $2.1 billion is what we uh, believe is going to be the cost of this deal. And that includes the capital transit that's required uh, up front uh, in, in the deal. Um, and they're funded, both the transit capital and operations are funded throughout the term of the deal. Forty years is what we used. That could be 50 or it could be less. We used 40 years. Uh, in looking at some of these alternatives. TIFIA loans can represent up to 33% of the project costs and are secured by, you know, the USDOT in that regard. And we've met specifically with the office and gone through in detail the provisions of the particular loan. And also, um, there are credit enhancements that are up there, but there's some credit enhancements available. The state finds itself today in a different position it was three or four years ago. And I should have pointed that out. there was no 2313 on the horizon when a lot of these deals were done. There was no, so look, it's a different world, but we're not there today. We do have some resources. They're not unlimited, and they ought to be looked at in terms of the justification of opportunity cost, but we do have some resources today. The Virginia Transportation Infrastructure Bank can offer guarantees to enhance some of these credits in that. So those were the assumptions that we used. And here are, the broad brush that we came back to our financial analysis, including our P3 department, including Secretary of Finance uh, on the public finance side, Rick Brown's office. Now, it's been portrayed that what we've done, it, that really should be public-private partnership concession, because everything is be, put anyway, but, and the other one is uh, public finance options. These are just not one deal. This is a range of the different options we looked at. So, But we had both our P3 office and we had another group, public finance. They came up very close on the P3. Now, let me point out, no private partner said this. In other words, we could be completely wrong. But based on what uh, the financial analysis in our group did, this is about where we are. We're going to need about $900 to $1 billion in upfront public funding. Now we met money, and, and by the way, these are apples and apples because that does include the transit continuing operations in it, at least in the models that we've run. We went for a long time saying it couldn't be, but they looked back and said they're able to do that. So, uh, and that the rest would be either put up of debt or equity in this particular deal in the, in the public-private partnerships, um, and of course there would be no excess revenues in the term over this deal. Why? Because we could probably negotiate an excess revenue sharing agreement in there, but that depends on negotiation. But looking at that, that was consistent between uh, what public finance took the inputs and our P3 office really close in terms of what we think the options are. But again, no private industries looked at this. And that, so that, that could be off. Be but using those same inputs on the public finance side, and there's at least four different options that we looked at, and I'll go through the, uh, some of the political and other risks. Um, but there are options everywhere from using our own, uh, AAA credit rated, uh, I'll add, but without impacting debt capacity. There are options looking at a 460 structure. There are options looking at a combination thereof. Various options look like from our analysis and having independent review that our upfront subsidy was significantly less. And that the continuing excess revenues, you know, were fairly substantial. They're not there. Those excess revenues may be there in the private deal, but they're not available to us. In other words, the, the risk they're taking, they're typically shared. But, so I'm, you know, in that, But it looks like there's quite a bit of revenues. Now, look, think about this. Um, if you go back and look at the deals we did, all of them are, we think, are cash flowing going forward, right? That's what everybody believes. Not everyone has worked out. Um, but, but they think, and that, so you're, you're, you're paying a great price up front for not having the money you need. But this gets back to the point that we have limited resources, and it appears both up front and on a continuing basis we could finance this without hearing from our private parties. It looks like our first blush publicly financed deals look like they're an option we ought to consider. Somebody asked the other day, are you doing this for real or are you negotiating? And the answer is yes.
4: we <laughs> are doing it both.
2: The answer is absolutely yes. This is the baseline we're going to be negotiating from because I believe it can be accomplished in that. So, um, but I want to point out that it's not um, uh, being um, uh, done by using our debt capacity. And there's provisions that we've used on other deals in the Commonwealth that allow this, and I've worked with Secretary Brown. I know the structures are real, but they come with political and other risks. And even if we choose not to do it, I think our citizens need to know what they're giving up. So this gets us over to the policy and political considerations. Certainly the available state funding during construction. Oh, by the way, let me back up. I'm going I'm to provide all the detail of these runs. I'm not asking you to take my word. I'm going to provide you all the detail with these runs, when, and I'll wrap that up in, in going through there. But available state funding during construction period and impacts on the, for other projects. Now, I know every one of you have read our six-year improvement plan, and on the top of the head can tell me how much money do we have over the next six years that's available for projects in the Commonwealth that's not encumbered. Don't want to pop your head? I'm kidding. <laughs> And, excuse me, $798 million. We have $798 million over the next six years that's not in comfort. We needed a billion almost on a P3. I was in southwest Virginia. Now, it may be wrong, but I'm just saying that's that's a limitation. $798 million is all we got. I was in southwest Virginia, and a legislator comes up to me going, Oh, I just got a call from a, a person in northern Virginia, a delegate, saying that we're going to do... A, publicly-financed deal, and you're going to take all the money in the state, and there's going to be nothing left for and Northern Virginia's going to get all the money. I said, well, I might be right, but I'm not sure you have got be backwards. <laughs> I think if we do a P-3, we're going to take a substantial amount of our monies, based on our analysis. So that's one of the reasons that we looked at these other alternatives. Now, the General Assembly authorization of public debt may not impact our debt capacity, but, depending on the program, we may require a vote of the General Assembly. One program takes two-thirds vote. One takes a majority vote. So there are a couple of projects looked at. They may not want to do it. I'm going to, well, I think they ought to know what the, what the cost of not doing it is, but I think that's a consideration. There is a risk that we you know, some of these deals can't be done. Funding from the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority. We have made it clear both here and in Hampton Roads, these major projects, we expect participation. And we've met with uh, Chairman Noe and his staff. No no agreements, but think about it. Uh, if you're going to invest and have a chance to get some money back, isn't that what our private sectors do? You know, if I'm Northern Virginia Authority, I'm thinking I'm going to invest, but i got some monies coming back to help me do other projects in, Hampton, in Northern Virginia, and that's what we would suggest, that should all be something we want to consider. I'm saying it's the only thing. But I'm saying I believe they're, and I'm putting words in their mouth, but you know, looking at it the way I would look at it, there was a chance of getting some other projects done and they can multiply their money. That may entice them to put in more money than otherwise. I'm not saying they wouldn't put it in. can't make that decision, but that's something we ought to consider. Again, the project funding for improved transit service. I don't see how we do a deal without that. So I think the deal's got to pay for it. Otherwise, we have to compare what the state's going to have to pay for in looking at the whole transaction. And as I said, future quarter improvements. Should we give, look, we give up the risk on the, on the uh, revenues, uh, we also give up the rewards, and we may want to do that. And what I'm trying to say is, okay, I've got, a, I've got a baseline. Where does it make sense working with you guys for us to do that? just like you would look at, trying to find where that is. Because the best deals are made when both parties' objectives are aligned. I don't know if you saw the headlines this morning, in Hampton Roads, no chance to make lemonade in Portsmouth. A study came out about the detrimental impact to the tolls in Hampton Roads on the city of Portsmouth. Now I'm not suggesting the article's right or wrong. I'm not but I am suggesting is is that we have no way to make this better. No way. When we bought the tolls down, it was the poorest use of, of, of transportation dollars in the Commonwealth. All we did was transfer risk away from us, to, uh, to, uh, to us from the third party. Not a good use. We should have put them up front. When we, on that deal, we estimated it was going to raise $200 million in tolls uh, during the construction period, pre-capacity, we couldn't stand the political pressure, so the states paid 212 million to buy the tolls down. So political pressures go both ways. Now that's another thing I need to point out to you. Under the public finance scenarios, this group has the tolling authority. So the tolling authority uh, it comes from the CTB. So you have the ability to do it. That's one of the things I got where well, our legislators don't want to have to be in a, to, to to do tolling. They don't. You do. By the way, it's dynamic tolling. So it's not like a fixed toll. We're looking at the hot lanes concept, as Renee pointed out. But nonetheless, uh that's a risk. Political go both ways in that. So let me wrap up here and then open it up for discussion uh, in that. Um, but these are the risks we see with project implementation and financing. The construction. But there's more than one way to do that. We have a design bill. We can transfer much of that risk uh, in, in there. Um, operations and maintenance. I I believe a third party should probably do this. But let me point out, there's no guarantee they're going to do it any better. I'll point out the downtown Midtown Tunnel. Uh, great idea to uh, shift that burden, except every time there's something that's written, it's about VDOT. And they're not the concessionaire. So... You know, there's no guarantee to get shifted. These are our roads. Even if we do a 60-year commitment or whatever uh, uh, concession, they're our roads. At the end of them, we get them back. The toll revenues and debt service, that's that's clearly a risk. And how do we mitigate those risks in there? And and that's going to talk about the way forward. Here's what I plan to do. And I want to make it clear, again, we would love to have a partner on this deal. Love to have a partner to share some of these risks. But our analysis says, you know, we have to also understand what the cost that we're giving up and what's the benefit of that. So I'm going to call into um, uh, session in about 45 days, because we want to get past July 1st, this new committee. The new committee that is the steering advisory committee that's made up of the, the independent groups, the financial groups of this. I'm going to provide them all this. Not only this presentation, but all the detail runs and all the members. And during that time, I'm going to invite the public to come either to my office or to them, and and let's talk about ideas. Because I don't want to waste anybody's time, either theirs or ours. And what we're going to do is, once they meet, that committee will decide what they need to have. And I suspect they'll have some other things. And we'll make a decision on procurement by sometime this summer. But I think we cannot do that until we have this public debate from both sides, that everybody gets to come in and say the good and bad, also how our numbers are wrong. And I'm all ears, but you just can't come in and say they're wrong and you need to do it this way. You're going to have to convince us as to where we're negotiating from. That's the process that we will do in the interim, Renee and, and Jennifer and Charlie will continue forward on the project as we work forward with this uh, this the debate on how we're going to move forward with the procurement of 66. If we move forward, I want to make a point, you know, we, we haven't got there yet in there. So uh and I make that very clear, you know the project or or the or the procurement decisions have been made or no predetermination. So with that, thank you all for listening, but William, you had a question.
5: Yeah, well, I just had a couple, since you elevated me to this lofty position, uh, (laughs) I'll say something. uh, I'm kind of scared right now. It sounds like we're going to have a lot of work in the next couple months, but um, I I want to back up what Aubrey said in this sense. I think it is extremely prudent to have two tracks go on, on any P3. Um, That just because we have the ability to do a P3 doesn't mean it's the best way to go. And so we need to be able to evaluate that. Um, I think it will and should sharpen the private sector's pencils, both in terms of uh revenue requirements up front and uh in terms of their ability to accept more risk uh on all the different risk profiles that that we do. Um, You know we've got to we've got to we've got to manage that. I also want to point out you're correct. Uh, it used to be, if you wanted to do a big project in Virginia over the last 10 or 15 years, it had to be a big deal. There was no other money. There was no other way to do it. That's not true now. So, so that requires a different focus. And, and I, I think that's, that's important. Um, to the extent that you want to talk to me about it, 460 to me is irrelevant. It doesn't, either way, people say, well, you're, to, you're turning, if you do a, a design build, it's 460 all over again and you're not a problem. No, it's not. That's a different situation. And other people say, well, if you do a PPTA, these don't work, 460 didn't work. Well, we fixed those problems. So 460 to me doesn't have anything to do with this.
4: We learned from it. We changed it.
5: Marty and I were on the committee. We, we've got the guidelines in place. The law has changed. I think we're adequately projected on the risk piece. So that, to me, doesn't it, Having said that, I do understand the financial risk. These toll predictions are volatile. Okay? Okay. And, and so far, the private sector hasn't done a great job of <laughs> it either, at least in Virginia.
4: Uh, I'm not sure VDOT's going to do any better. So one of
5: the things that we need to pay attention to really closely is this revenue projection. Um, and, and we'll do that. Um, the other thing is the financial risk. Uh, if that, if those numbers are wrong, in other PPTA deals, we've been able to share in the upside without the downside risk. We need to be looking at that as we look as we evaluate a PPTA versus what we what we can do ourselves. That's going to be important to me to look to see: do we share in this upside? Uh, because under your slide, it was zero versus 200 to 500. Well, maybe that's not right. Maybe, 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 not. maybe, we, can, maybe we can do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other question is, uh, why would we put this hillbilly from Roanoke on a P3 committee <laughs> when, you know, most of the P3s are going to be in Hampton or Northern Virginia or maybe Richmond, I mean, you know. And, and I think, and this is for the, the whole board to understand, um, when we do a P3, we're not using our bonding capacity. Okay? So that gives more bonding capacity to do projects in the rest of the state. So that's an important factor that we need to consider. That's why P3s, whether we do a P3 or not, one well, reason might matter.
2: Well, one correction, Mr. Palin, uh, there are options where it doesn't impact the debt capacity. Okay.
5: Well, that but, may be but, but,
2: I mean, but you are
5: generally... I, I knew exactly you right. trying yeah. to figure this out.
6: Yes. Um, that's right.
5: So, so there's, there's that issue. Uh, and there is limited debt capacity, you know, we have, we have uh, I think we have about $3 billion out in debt or something like that, so we, there's a limited amount of money we can borrow, and if we do a big giant 6 to 6 project without, there may be ways around it, but I suspect it's going to impact that, so that, that comes out of everyone's pocket. There is a political risk, okay, there's a political risk either way, like the Secretary said. But the political risk when we're operating it is much greater than the political risk when somebody else is operating. Because what's going to happen if the tolls go up and all of a sudden it's a bunch of money, people are going to complain, they're going to call their delegate, they're going to call the governor, they're going to call whoever, and they're going to say, these tolls are ridiculous, this is not right. I mean, just look at 28. I mean, I mean, the dullest toll run. I mean, you know, that's going to happen if, you know, if these tolls are meaningful and are able to pay for a $2 billion project. So there's a political risk there that will have to be pressured to do that. So having said that, I get all that. I like P3s, but I'm the only one on this panel that's voted to reject the P3, which I did at the poll. So I will reject the P3 if I don't think it's a good deal. And I will accept the P3, though, if I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I
2: just wanted to, to lay where I was coming from. And, I, when, I, and when I called William to do this, you know, he went through that, but he also said, uh, you know, I'm not going to be a rubber stamp. I, you know, I, you know, you might want to get somebody. I said, that, that's exactly what I want. These are hard decisions, guys. I'm not looking for rubber stamps. Governor's not looking for rubber stamps. We were serious when we made this independent. These are hard
1: decisions. Very difficult decisions. Mr. Garzinski, I'll come over. Mr. Secretary, uh, Certainly a a heavy burden is placed on uh, this uh, private partnership advisory committee and the work that they have to do, and I have every confidence that uh, Mr. Casports and Mr. Fralin will do us well. My question is more for the CTB in general. How do we uh, integrate into this process so that we're not just getting, here's the results of the advisory committee and here's our recommendation without a chance for the rest of us to have an input into that process I, I think you need to have a lot of
2: input into that process and I, I believe uh, the committee and I would look for the measure and you, you're welcome to look at anything we've had and I I will do this I got I haven't figured out how to do it um, legally from the standpoint I guess going to public session but I Meant very seriously. I don't want you voting on anything that you don't have every piece of information you need. Now the guidelines will help some. There's touch points, but I think you'll find the secretary's office uh, that when you want to know information, um, exclusive or proprietary until until that in, in that um, uh, unless we go into closed session in, in that regard. But you'll find it. I, I think I would encourage the members, and I would guess uh, go to that. You know, encourage them to reach out and get involved. I mean, I I do believe more input. This is a public debate that needs to be had. And I want to stress again, I am not, uh, you know, prejudiced one way or the other. There are substantial risks both ways, both ways, and substantial benefits both ways. We just need to make sure, look, what is it is unacceptable, and nobody can break the future. I am am determined not to have one of these articles written uh, about us in the future.
4: Yeah, and,
2: and if they helpful. are, it's because
1: it's laid out there. Here's why we did it. Well, my other point is that 460 and the 29 were certainly important in those regions of the Commonwealth and generated a lot of publicity both sides. But for the most part, people in northern Virginia haven't been in-depth studying what happened at 460 or Route 29. They're worried about 66 and how we're going to proceed. So it's going to be very important, even as the process is going on, that the, the citizenry be kept up to date, uh, as you're doing here today, because that's that's the only way that we don't have that negative. We, did, we didn't know, we did know. We weren't told.
6: Yeah, a- absolutely. And,
2: and I think Mr. Phelan said it right. We are where we are today. All that stuff's irrelevant. I'm just, how we're going forward. There's no prejudice for or against As I told somebody the other day, I mean, you've probably heard it before, I'm fairly agnostic about most things in life other than the God I worship and family and the country I live in. I'm pretty much driven by the numbers and entrepreneurial, and I do understand risk. We just can't accept it or pass it on without understanding. Does that mean we'll get it 100% right? No. But nobody... Here's the issue now. If you go through a process deliberate that people can understand... Then that's one thing. I got to stand in front of House Appropriations, Senate Finance, and answer the question, Mr. Secretary, why did you do this? I can't say because I thought it was better. I can. I don't think I. I you know. And plus, I have to sign a certification now. I take that very seriously. So that's all I'm saying is I want this group, the citizenry, that to help me. You know, and let's have but I do think it's also a good public debate because there's a lot of policy and political considerations tied up in here. There's a lot of ways how we use their money. And I would tell you, the next deal we could run, the numbers would be completely opposite. Now, there's one thing I do want to put out on, and I could not agree more than the gentleman that was quoted in the uh, the, the article today in the Washington Post. Uh, the last uh, article, the last quote was, man, this is a really good revenue stream that people are willing to pay a lot for. I hope so. Because I believe so, too. I believe in assessing risk. We're not introducing tolls. We're not building a tunnel project. I believe if there's ever one that we ought to take a hard look, it's this one. I'm I'm not downplaying the risk. Believe me. I spent my whole life trying to stay away from risk. in that. so... But... You know, it's the same and the opposite on 460. The private sector told us they weren't taking any risk. Why didn't we heed their, you know, their comment? Same here. You know, that's all I'm saying. Uh, They should expect us to act in the best interest of our taxpayers, which are what I consider our investors, just like they're going to act in the best interest of their fiduciaries. Now, let me also point out, I meant to point this out earlier. I do believe, and in making sure we continue to have public invest private investment, I think there's a benefit to that. That should be part of this calculation too. We have very good partners, some domestic, some international, that put a lot of money into Virginia. That's good. But they also take some money out. And that's okay too. But my point is, is that we need to make sure we're making it informed. But I do believe that continued investment and in good relations are very paramount to you know are doing this so I want to make it clear this is not a shift away from private public partnerships but it is a shift towards trying to make more informed decisions yep, this is um,
7: I have just a an observation and a question one observation is is when the new guidelines were put together there are three points in the process that it does come back to the CTB, not for the procurement decision, but for the allocation of funds. Right. So it does give all of us an opportunity to make sure that we are indeed following the public benefits of this process, which I actually thought was an uh, excellent, in fact we I actually talked about only doing two, and the P3 office and, Mr. Co- and they added... Doug and his group did excellent work. Yeah. so that was, you know, very good that you kept that in there. Um, You've mentioned, and maybe this is too much in the weeds, that we could move forward and make some decisions that would not affect our bonding capacity. Mm, because I problems. think one of the fears or one of the concerns that's coming forward is that if we do these big projects and we do it publicly, the public procurement, that it would affect our bonding capacity and that there would be a lot of projects around Virginia we could no longer do or right. couldn't do So when you say, well, certain things can happen and it wouldn't affect our capacity, would you...
4: Yeah, there are
2: different programs. Uh, There are different types of financing, Uh, and there's some disagreement as to whether it affects it up front, but then it burns off, and there's some in that. It all depends on how the governor has to make a certification that these are backed by tolls uh, in that. So it's not clear-cut. I don't want to oversell it, but there are... And there's strong evidence, and working with uh, these professionals, that it can be structured such that it does. Now, it may cause something else. Look, when we were up talking to the, uh, the bond, uh, the bond agencies, the rating agencies, I mean, one of the questions I got, and, and look, I'm dealing with the transportation bond, so I'm not answering for Secretary Brown, please not that. But you know, we do have a triple A credit rating. Now, we want to preserve it. But you also want to use it. I mean, and that's where I'm, you know, coming from, There's, I've been doing a lot of these. I've never done a billion-dollar deal, but I've done billions of dollars with the deals. I mean, nobody can borrow as any cheaply as we can. Uh, I don't know. Maybe China will come on, want to come over, and they've got zero interest. I, you know, I'm, I'm all for that, but I'm only looking at what I know in that regard. And so that's the question. And what do you give up to get that? I understand that's exactly the point. All I'm saying is, let's just make sure that we can justify and quantify what we're giving up if we chose that route, not just saying, it's better to do that. I don't think that's going to hold scrutiny anymore with our General Assembly. And it shouldn't, or our taxpayers either. And look, you've all read the headlines, there's pros and cons. I tell you, I I mentioned the other day, I'm either, uh, I'm either a, uh, a, a capitalist that's no good, that's getting ready to give all our money to a foreign company, or I'm, I'm anti-business because I would dare look at a public finance project. I mean, you know, so just pick you know, whatever side you're on, and what we're going to do is go through a process and try to come up with the best solution. I feel comfortable that we have a framework to negotiate from. Yeah. And I, I think that's what our, our citizens would demand of us to do. Just a talk. I, I thought
7: it might be helpful for you to explain the rationale behind why the board does not approve
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's basically the law. And the P3 law basically was to get the entrepreneurial and the creativity from the private sector. Absolutely, I think it's critical. The theory is to do that, then you suspend, you you give the, the public sector the ability to negotiate, and you can do things to help compensate the private sector to get their monies. Well, you know, they're very good negotiators you're some of the most sophisticated investors in the world. Just saying that out, I mean, I recognize I'm not as sophisticated as they are. I know people who are, and, I mean, that's, and I'm not afraid to use them. But my point is that all I'm saying is that, you know, I, I keep, I'll go back to 460 again. I'm not convinced that DDOT or the state didn't think they actually transferred the risk. It was through a warranty they didn't do it. You know, I mean, in other words, so, look, if you've done these deals, uh, deals before, I mean, you know, uh, there's lots of ways to limit your risk other than through the monetary aspects, through warranties, representations you make, different things. So all I'm suggesting to you is when we go down that path, we, are, we both are good, we have the opportunity to receive it, but they're going to negotiate from their best interest, and they, what's exactly what they should do. In that regard. So that's all I'm suggesting to you. I'm not saying we should stay away because we can't, not at all. We have, but I'm just saying that is part of the risk, too, in that. Yeah, Mr. Whitworth. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Cole, I'll come back.
8: I want to uh, follow up a little bit on Mr. piece uh, comments. If, by virtue of the name of, as an advisory group that you have designated. I haven't, the law did, but yes. Uh, whatever. Yeah. But, my understanding then is that the result of that action, whatever it be, the advice comes to this board. Right. Um, no. Uh,
2: that action goes to the procuring agency.
8: So then Mr. Krasinski's question is, uh, the responsibility uh, of that action, uh, does that fall on this, uh, on this body?
2: You need to have whatever information you think is necessary to allocate monies and, and touching these things. That's your real role is at the end of the day, you have a veto. If you don't vote to allocate monies, the project doesn't get done.
8: Which would be after the fact. Is that
2: no, that's where the question that Gary or Mr. Vinci brought up is staying informed. And I give you my pledge. I'm going to give you updates. And if become, when we're actually in a deal proprietary, we'll have to go into closed session.
8: It's possible, however, that rational people of great intellect, which we have on this committee, could disagree. Absolutely. Uh, and what would be your posture where there is a close disagreement? Five, four, three, you know, Secretary votes in a tie. But this board does not.
2: Is this, is this vote, when if, you, if you, let's say, you're uh, you, you tied in the allocation of monies, I would have the deciding vote uh, in that. Um, um, The the executive branch is is charged with executing the policy, and that's in the VDOT and DRPT. I've given you Uh, what my word is I've said where you have, Mr. Whitworth. I've gone through at least two examples where I now know I didn't have all the information. My pledge to you is that I will make sure you have that information to the extent I know it.
6: In that, so, Mr. Cole. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It would, as, it would assume, or I would assume that we've heard a form of value for money analysis from you this morning. And my question is, uh, at what point in the process do we do another full value for money analysis and by whom is that done? Yeah,
2: I actually it'll be the, working with, uh, D, uh DRPT and VDOT and, and the P3 will actually, the department will actually do that. I think now, uh, and of course, the end of the day you know executive branch has got to say yes we we agree or not uh, i think now we've sort of staged it to begin that to get that process i think we've sort of staged it in that regard uh, i will tell you the um the um uh, consultant that did the quality control basically said at the end um you know pretty much it comes down to the assumptions and what have you but that uh, right now, the state was not in a position to make any recommendation, whether it's public or, you know, in other words, in other words, so whether you wanted to move forward with the P3 or you wanted to public, you know, what they're saying is, you know, you know, you've done a really good job of framing the issue. Uh, we wouldn't give you the the uh, go ahead to go either way because we need to do some more work, and that's what was leading into my when we sort of. You know, we took some criticism, but slowed the process down a little bit. These are tough decisions. They're complicated decisions. So I think this is the way, and I'm going to work with uh, Doug and his group and Jennifer and Charlie and their groups and their financial people and say, you know, how do we go about now, we frame framed this decision, how do we get the private input we need, how do we get the stuff so we can actually move forward with a decision? Or they can say all the bad assumptions we made. That's okay, too. Yes, Mr. Fraylor. Well, okay.
5: Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Couple, a couple of observations. One, um, it's not just the, the, this committee. We, we're going to have technical advice. I think KPMG yeah. is providing that.
2: You've, KPMG, we've had uh, a PFM and Prague. So, they're so all we'll have some have, have
5: robust financial analysis available to us. And the way I understand the guidelines, here, here's the deal. I don't think Aubrey can make a deal without us. But he can veto it, right? That's probably because he's got to certify it's in the public's interest before we get to to, to second base, right? And and so that's in his sole discretion. This committee is going to make a recommendation to Aubrey about whether, well, the secretary, yeah, that's right, assuming it's still here, it may (laughs) not be after today. (laughs) (laughs) That 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 will decide whether we go forward at all. Um,
9: I want to raise another issue,
5: Um, and this is again. Maybe it's still time to fire me, but I'm very concerned about doing a P3 outside of the beltway and doing some sort of deal inside of the beltway on 66 where we run smack into HOV3. Mm-hmm. And we, we spend a ton of money increasing capacity on 66. And it just, you know, it slams into uh, inside the beltway where we are not even considering widening and um, at least not that, in that, the foreseeable future, apparently. So, you know, I'm concerned about that. So whether we do, our, whether we take the risk or whether we, we do a P3 and let the private sector take the risk, when whoever takes that risk, I'm, I need to understand what happens when you get to the Beltway.
2: I think that, and the project, if I agree, I think there's some alternatives we have in there, and I think that's what we've got to be developing. That's what I was saying, the project development and these policies... I don't know, you know, there is an interplay, you're right, there is an interplay, and I, listen, I'll, let's just bring this out. I mean, here all the time, oh my gosh, PDOT was going to tell her, 300 homes down, and we came in, and the private sector saved all that from happening. Uh, I'm not questioning whether that happened or didn't happen. What uh, they came up with was a different delivery method where we weren't having to widen the things in that regard. In that, So... Um, I don't, uh, I, project delivery with our consultants, and let's put it this way, whether it's project or anything else, if these numbers are in the ballpark, there's a billion dollar swing. I can go hire the, the most the most sophisticated construction manager I want, and it's still worth it. So I mean, that I agree with you. I might, I might, I don't want you for one thing to think dot and I, I, I've told them, I think they're, I do believe that they're doing good stuff. But look, uh, we're going to use the resources, and I agree 100. Uh, percent. Well, that, that because what I'm saying, Mr. Secretary, is, yep.
5: is, what's going to happen inside of the beltway I, I, I is relevant to to whether we do, in my mind, a project, mm-hmm. and and um, I'm not sure it's been communicated that way, and I don't. I think there are a lot of folks in Arlington that don't want to widen 66, but don't really understand the impact of a toll inside the beltway, HOV three.
2: Concept. Let's be careful. Don't presuppose uh, <laughs> what they know and don't no. know because well, we're well, working on well, the but I But yeah, no, I got it. Project development, and that's look. Uh, that's why we're working in tandem to do it. I understand. I, I don't see how we could have done it without considering inside the beltway. Okay. Right now, we have local. They meet. I think they meet four, uh, week by weekly. I think there's a technical team that are working biweekly. The localities involved. That's ongoing. Uh, in that. Um, so, but I 100% understand where you're coming from. Yeah, Mr. Dyke.
3: A uh, couple of things. First, I've, I'm in agreement with William with respect to, you got to look at the whole package because when I was first approached about outside the beltway, my first response was, what's going to have to be inside the beltway? So at some point, somebody's going to have to step up and deal with that. And
2: we are, we're, we're, we're doing that.
3: Yeah. And second is, I think this process, regardless of how you feel about it, the fact that we're doing, uh, shall we say, deep dive due diligence, is very important for us to show the taxpayers that we are looking at every possible option, figure out how to spend the money and, and deliver a better system. So I think regardless of how we come out on this, the fact that we sort of, elongated this process. To look at all the options I think is a good thing. Next point is, my general inclination is toward T3s generally. I mean, I've been associated with folks who were there at the beginning, with, with Senator Starch and everybody else to develop this process. And so I'm, I'm certainly very open to that process. But I'm also open to us looking at what's involved in this deal. And as I understand what's being talked about, it you just mentioned it two seconds ago. I hadn't heard it mentioned earlier. You're talking about a billion-dollar swing. Well,
2: if if you, you go look at the numbers, yeah, upfront subsidy, yeah, and, and depending if we don't a, get a 70 if You're yeah. talking
3: about a billion-dollar swing that could involve significant amount of new dollars for transit and significant amount of new dollars for other parts of the state <laughs> That we would not I, would, I would recommend it stay
2: way. all here in Northern Virginia because it's in the corner. No, I understand, I understand yeah. but
3: the point is that there, there would also be some fallout, I think, that money sure. that would be used here could then be freed up to be used elsewhere. So I think, and I, I mention that simply because one of the solutions you may be look at, looking at involves us to get legislative support for this. Yep. And so oh. we're going to have to show folks That's right. why there is a statewide interest in this being done. So I'm anxious to see what those numbers are, and because to me that's a significant point that I think would, would move me in a, in a certain direction. So I'm looking. But the other point I want to make at the end, picking up on what Gary said, even though we ultimately have sort of, as you said, the last vote to decide whether or not to allocate, I think we need to be involved every step of the way, because if we only get to weigh in at the end, the deal is done, and we can't it, it either go up or down. So I think we need to be engaged and figure out how we do it either through Scott and, and William, some other way of getting the entire board involved so that if we've got issues, we can raise them along the way to make sure when it finally gets to us,
4: it's not a matter of
3: first impression and that
2: we're comfortable with the process. Of yeah, uh, it. I've made that commitment. You're not going to vote on <laughs> things you're not uncomfortable with. and so uh, yeah, uh, I I've made that commitment. You're not going to vote on things you're not uncomfortable with. And so uh, you have my <laughs> commitment to do that. <laughs>
10: Said
4: it again. My God, I'm impressed. <laughs>
2: that's
1: an omen. That's
2: an omen
4: there. To the point about inside-outside the beltway. <laughs> the inside, outside the beltway <laughs> the yes, Mr. Jasinski. Uh, Mr. Cabot,
1: going to very, very visionary with our vision vision helicopter this afternoon of exactly what Bill Yeah,
2: Mr. Frelin, we have a summer situation on 395. yeah Build 95. And 95. And friend, we have a summer <laughs> I
4: know.
2: We should learn from our
4: experiences. I
2: won't say mistakes, but our experiences, and that's part we of the From our experiences, We've I won't say mistakes but our experiences, and that's part step of this review, we too. Say what we
6: are,
2: sir. We've been doing this pretty hard. We ought to take a just a step back and say what we are, sir. Can I head in my remarks since we're getting the <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, is there, I mean, look, this is not going to be the last of this. I want to let you All know right. um, what it was. Is there, I mean, look, this is not going to be the last of this. I want to let you know what it was. It, what, what's, what's, what is going on here? Is it, is it, uh, okay? Okay. Um, but, uh, we is it, should, uh, uh, I think this is okay. a, it is now in Virginia's okay. history time. Um, at, well, um, we should, uh, I think this is a, and and it is, is now in Virginia's so history time. So we're committed to whichever way we need to have to go forward. And Can I'll tell you again, we're not so, prejudging this. And whatever we decide, you'll find an advocate, uh, in, 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 in this going forward. I do believe this is the most important project. We've got to get this, um, get this right. Okay. Um, we get to go into, unless there's any more questions, we get to go into House Bill Two, uh, two our uh, presentations. Okay. Do you want to take uh, two minutes, or okay, yeah. two-minute break, and then uh, about five minutes, and we'll we'll get back together. Thank you all for your
4: attention. <laughs>
1: i check one two. Testing oh, right.
4: one two three. Mic check one
11: two.
8: Mic check one two. One two three. One. Yeah, one two three. Mic check. Yeah. One, two, three. one two three.
1: One two. One two, two. One, two three. <laughs> one,
9: two.
4: Well, that's <laughs> the sort of thing. My
8: check. One, two. Here's the thing.
4: It takes money to into the
5: So we have, to, we have to vote to allocate the money. So if we say
4: we're not going to allocate the money to evaluate it, we street <laughs> <laughs>
11: Testing, testing,
4: one, two, test, testing, one, two, three. Of course, let right. Let's
5: we have in the first
4: One, two. My check, one two, fifty one, two, three.
1: Yeah. Check, one, two, testing one, two, mic check, mic check, one, two, mic check, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. 2 3 my check 1 2 testing One two three, 2 my check 1 2 my check 1 2 1 2, three. One, two. One, two, my check, one, two. Testing one, two, my check. Testing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.
12: Maintaining the region's roads, bridges, and other infrastructure is critical to keeping drivers safe and moving. Whether it's signals or sound walls, the Northern Virginia District serves the most in the state. That's why nearly half of the District's workforce is dedicated to maintenance activities. They continually inspect and evaluate infrastructure, manage equipment, materials and repairs, and provide critical data toward planning construction. With the largest construction program in the state, the Northern Virginia District has a robust plan that integrates rehabilitation and new construction. Building roads and bridges, replacing aging infrastructure or improving technology, construction is planned and managed carefully with cities, counties, and planning organizations. The district manages a three-quarter billion dollar construction program, as well as a multi-billion dollar mega-projects program, both dedicated to innovative delivery, such as design-builds and public-private partnerships. The district's engineering teams map and design each project to meet strict environmental and technical standards. Staff listen to citizens at every step through public meetings, technology, and community outreach. When work is in full swing, Northern Virginia staff coordinate more than 150 lane closures every day. Road by road, lane by lane, they manage construction work always working to keep traffic moving with as few disruptions as possible. Through all of this, the region continues to grow at an unprecedented rate. Northern Virginia accepts about 140 new lane miles of roads built by developers that are added to VDOT's program each year, more than the rest of the state combined. Local and state economies, jobs and job growth depend on VDOT to provide a viable infrastructure that keeps people and commerce moving. Managing operations, maintenance, repair, and construction in such a diverse and complex environment requires the Northern Virginia District to work closely with many partners. The federal government, localities, transit providers, bicycle and pedestrian communities, planning organizations, and almost 100 elected officials are constantly engaged through close collaboration and comprehensive communication. Supporting VDOT's mission are the dedicated employees in the Northern Virginia District. More than 750 professionals, including highly skilled engineers, managers, and technicians work closely with VDOT's central office to provide citizens and businesses with roads and programs they can count on. District leaders value the skill, expertise, and diversity of all staff at VDOT and are committed to providing a positive work environment that includes ongoing training and career advancement. VDOT staff embrace the agency's goals and deliver infrastructure at every level. Each day, these individuals balance priorities and challenges to improve quality of life through safe and reliable transportation. And they do it with pride because Northern Virginia depends on VDOT. VDOT, we keep Virginia moving.
2: So uh this, this afternoon we'll be able to fly over some of those projects uh, with uh Mr. Gasparis through arranged some helicopter tours this afternoon to see what's going on <laughs> so uh this, this afternoon we'll be able to fly over some of those projects uh, with uh Mr. Uh, Gasparis. But, um what we're going to do next is move into the uh alternative fuels vehicle uh conversion program Mr. Hayes Frame I know is uh here? Oh,
6: here he is. Yes, sir.
2: Um, you guys may remember this uh, about using some of our uh, CMAC monies for conversion. And um, the issue was there was a discussion related to um, paying for the entire vehicle where the city might normally, or the county, would already have that, and it was a way to get out of their budget, and we had this large discussion. What Mr. Uh, Frame is going to talk about today... It's just that delta. In other words, and this is a something of the, the difference between what they would pay and what the cost conversion would be, which I think is a more reasonable use, um, but the policies of the administration. So, Mr. good welcome. sorry you had to wait a little bit, but appreciate your patience.
13: Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, members of the CTB. I want to make sure that this is on. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Um, thank you again for the opportunity to come and speak with you today. Uh, just a quick note, uh, the presentation that you have in front of you is slightly different than the one that I'm giving. Uh, one of the slides is, is excluded from, the, from this version versus the one that's on, on, uh, in front of you. So, uh, again, my name is Hayes Frommey. I'm advisor for infrastructure and development for the Secretary of Commerce and Trade's office. Uh, among the issues that I work on are, uh, is energy infrastructure and, and where that intersects with uh, other secretariats. in this case. Uh, alternative fuel vehicles and uh, the the Department of Transportation, Secretary of Transportation, not to the Commonwealth Transportation Board.
9: So, Mr. what, Promy? To... Let, let me uh,
2: also Please. apologize Please. for not saying your name correctly. I feel your pain because I sometimes have mine, so I w- want to apologize. Welcome, Mr. Promy. Well, I
13: appreciate that, Mr. <laughs> Chairman. You're not the first, and you certainly won't be the last. So, I appreciate that. Um, what I wanted to do is talk to you a little bit about t- today about the current state. Uh, program to allow for CMAQ funds to be utilized to pay for the incremental cost of alternative or of fleet conversion in state government uh, from uh, regular uh, vehicles to alternative fuel vehicles of various types. So, before I get into that particular issue, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context to fleet conversion in state government. I wanted to briefly discuss the governor's alternative fuels. Uh, goals as laid out in his energy plan when he, that he released in October of 2014. Um, then I will briefly talk about uh, the state's alternative fuels program and the three main components of that, which is a modification to the PPEA, a revolving loan fund, and the CMAX uh, funds for fleet conversion. I'll go into the how we got to where we are today uh, in terms of the CMAX funds for fleet conversion and why we are making the request to allow localities access to that to that fund. Then I'll conclude uh, by touching on what localities are doing within Virginia in terms of fleet conversion and then what other states are doing uh, with CMAQ funds for their uh, particular state fleet conversion. And I, obviously I'm happy to answer questions during the presentation or, or after I conclude. So this slide shows that in 2014 the governor released uh, the Virginia Energy Plan. Uh, And in that plan, he set three specific goals. Uh, Goals related to fleet conversion alternative fuel infrastructure deployment. Uh, The first is he set an immediate goal of converting 100 state vehicles to alternative fuels by October 2015. He also set an administration-long goal of 300 vehicles converted before he leaves office. And he set a goal of doubling the number of alternative fueling stations that are available by the end of uh, of his administration. Um, As you can see uh, from this uh, chart, uh, we are lagging behind the immediate goal of 100 vehicles uh, converted by October. To date, we have 19 vehicles in all of state government that have been converted. Since the release of the plan, uh, there have been 41 additional alternative fuel fueling stations that have been deployed and put into service in Virginia. That's about 10% of the governor's goal. Uh, As we work forward to look look towards uh, achieving these goals, uh, we are looking for various ways uh, to get there. One being trying to find creative uses for some of our existing tools. And just by order of magnitude, uh, adding 300 vehicles, uh, uh, converting 300 vehicles within state government can reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions over the fleet the fleet's life by about 5,000 tons. That's roughly 18 tons per year. This next slide just gives you a a breakdown of where those 19 vehicles are. You can see the Department of Mines, Minerals, and Energy uh, has the most, and then going down the line. So obviously our our alternative fuel conversion, while it has been a policy for previous administrations, has lagged lagged behind what what many other states have. Uh, This next slide, I just want to get into a little bit of the alternative fuel program that we have at the state level. The Commonwealth established the Alternative Fuels Fleet Program, which is intended to increase vehicle conversion and infrastructure deployment. The program was created by legislation in uh, 2011. Um, You can see the bill language here, and it instructs the establishment of a program focused on conversion of, of the state fleet. Uh, there are three components to the overall alternative fuels fleet program. I'll touch on the first two briefly and then focus primarily on the CMAQ portion. Uh, an executive order was signed just after legislation was passed in 2011, and what this EO did is it ordered a PPEA for alternative fuel stations. Over the course of the next 14 months, the PPA resulted in awarding of two contracts to two companies. Uh, these, co- these companies built two natural gas stations and one propane station. Uh, DMME also administers a revolving loan fund that is intended to make zero interest loans to agencies for the con- conversion of fuels, uh, conversion of vehicles rather to alternative fuels. It was capitalized primarily with ARA funds, although the program, the uh, loan fund itself was created by the legislature. It's capitalized uh, with ARA funds. Um, unfortunately, given the current state and local procurement processes, this is, this is a fairly unattractive uh, route for conversion. The third component of the program, which I'll focus most on, is a fund approved by this body in 2012 to allocate a portion of the CMAQ dollars towards state fleet conversion. While the fund was approved in 2012, uh, the Commonwealth just received formal approval from the federal government to to use these dollars for this intended purpose of July of last year. The amount contributed in the uh, six-year program uh, varies each year But the 2004 allocation is $1.2 million. The intent of the fund is to cover the incremental cost of agencies converting to alternative fuels. I think that's an important point that I'll just touch on. Incremental cost is the delta between what a regular vehicle would cost versus what an alternative uh, fuel vehicle would cost. And the purpose of the fund is to pay that delta. To make it essentially cost neutral for the agency to make a conversion or retrofit a, a, an existing vehicle to ensure that it runs on alternative fuels. The agency is able to utilize state, do, the, the dollars up to an average of $10,000 per vehicle. And again, the fund is authorized for the six year planning period. And this is where I'll jump to slide, uh, to slide seven from what you have in front of you now. Uh, the re- this is the reason that I am here today, and that's to request that the CMAQ State Vehicle Conversion Fund uh, be opened up for use by localities. If approved, localities within CMAC qualified areas will be able to utilize the funds to pay for, again, the incremental cost associated with conversion. They would be required to adhere to the same rules and requirements as the state agencies, but they would be a- able to access the dollars. There are numerous benefits to allowing locality access to these funds, both for localities and for the state. Uh, First, it aligns with the governor's energy strategy to develop more alternative, uh, to deploy more alternative fuel vehicles, both at the local and state levels. Converting more vehicles to alternative fuels can lower tailpipe emissions and reduce the environmental impact of the state's fleet and of the localities' fleet. But maybe more importantly, it will diversify the fuel mix of the vehicle fleet, of the vehicle fleets around the state. This lessens dependence on a single source of fuel and can save money for the states and localities uh, with the utilization of this fund particularly, uh, almost immediately with the fuel savings and then over the long term they can realize significant fuel savings. Second, facilitating an increase in deployment of alternative fuel vehicles to localities will help increase the deployment of fueling infrastructure. There is a chicken or the egg problem with alternative fuel vehicles and infrastructure. The CMAQ fund is a tool the state has and we want to be creative in getting a critical mass of vehicles that will warrant fueling infrastructure in particular areas, which can be capital intensive. If we can lo- lower the cost burden for the uh, for the localities for converting their vehicle fleets, then localities can expend those additional capital resources to build the infrastructure that the state could uh, potentially access. Third, Increased deployment of vehicles could provide Virginia with leverage to gain more favorable contractual terms with vendors of vehicles, infrastructure, and fuel. This could provide additional economic benefits for both the localities and the state. Uh, as you can see, these benefits are mutually beneficial for both localities and the state and are able to lower uh, conversion costs for the fleet conversion and improve air quality. Uh, here's a sampling of some of the localities that have invested in fleet conversion throughout the state. As you can see, alternative fuel vehicles are used for a variety of purposes uh, to deliver a variety of public services. Uh, we should be working with localities to increase conversion and spread the cost amount um, out among all stakeholders. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't bring my glasses, but you can see uh, that a number of the localities have shown leadership in this space. Uh, Richmond City especially has done a, a good job of, of converting a number of their uh, bus fleets to uh, a number within their bus fleet to uh, alternative fuel natural gas specifically. Uh, here are four localities again uh, that have expressed interest in the program specifically. They have a number of projects they would like to move forward with and the state should facilitate these when possible. We think that the, util- the opening up of these CMAQ funds to localities provides the state an opportunity to facilitate greater deployment. Uh, in CMAQ uh, qualified areas. Richmond City and Chesterfield alone could build six stations and deploy over 130 alternative fuel vehicles which they are considering and, and we believe that the state uh, can play a role in helping to move that forward uh, expeditiously. Uh, this next slide is just an example of some of, of the things that other states are doing uh, with some of their CMAQ dollars. Uh, you can see Illinois as an example has been working with Chicago to do some, some additional conversion. So there is some locality, state locality uh, relationships and partnerships that have been seen in other states. And I'll just finish up by saying I believe there are significant benefits for Virginia by opening these funds up for localities. We think that partnering with localities to uh, get them further on their vehicle conversion will benefit the state and will help us p- push forward with the governor's initiatives of getting the state to increase and accelerate our alternative fleet conversion. So with that, I thank the chairman and the members, and I'm happy to answer any questions.
2: I just wanted to point out, um, I think this is a very good compromise and a very good policy. Uh, we are actually incentivizing just the, all we're using the CMAC for is incentivizing to get the real result. And we had a discussion before where localities wanted the entire cost of the vehicle and there was a really debate about, well, are they just going to do that to push off, you know, their response? So, uh, Governor, uh, I think you know, this is supportive of his policy and directives and it's, from my perspective, a very good use of transportation dollars to get the ben- associated with the benefits. So just throw that out. Uh, and, uh, and Mr. Kirvin, I, I would just add that
13: uh, the, the decision for the localities using uh, CMAC funds to purchase an entire vehicle was focused on hybrid vehicles. So we're not talking about hybrid vehicles. This is alternative fuel vehicles. Hybrid vehicles are primarily considered gasoline-powered vehicles, and we're we not talking about those. So hybrids is not part of the CMAC fund equation currently, and it wouldn't be the case going forward.
6: Okay, Mr. Uh, Cole. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> On page three, you reference uh, 441 alternative fueling stations. Can you describe those? I would assume they're available for both uh, private and public use?
13: That includes all alternative fueling stations throughout the state, both public and private. So it would include public access stations, stations that are uh, allowed, that, that allow state access as well as public access, And it includes stations such as, we'll we'll just use Tesla as an example. Uh, Those Tesla uh, charging stations are restricted to Tesla uh, vehicle owners.
6: And how would our CMAQ funding uh, go to provide financing to private firms in the alternative?
13: That's a good question. These CMAQ funds particularly would just be focused on uh, the actual fuel or the vehicle conversion rather than financing of uh, fueling stations. The idea is a critical mass of vehicles will bring the
9: fueling station. Yes, sir. Thank you. Ms. Valentine, you have a question?
7: I did. Um, have Based on the um, localities that have um, converted their vehicles, have, are we keeping track about how much money we are saving um, in energy costs based on the conversion?
1: That's a
13: good question. It, it, when you say energy costs, are you talking about fuel costs the specifically? The fuel costs, with
7: you know, the alternative energy used to um, run these vehicles.
13: I do not know if we are tracking that at the local level, mm-hmm. uh, but there certainly is a gallon gas equivalent that can be used to calculate what those savings are.
7: So, do we, we? We're not doing it at the local level, but at the state level. At the
13: state level, I I have not seen those numbers, but I'll look for. I got Mike Bisoneo, who's the. Uh, the fleet manager for the Department of General Services, and he may be able to provide some insight on that.
11: Okay, i Mike Zunio, the uh, fleet director for the State of Virginia. Um, looking at t- yesterday's fuel prices,
7: which is pretty recent.
11: <laughs> pretty recent. We are on a daily, um, but under the state contracts, mm-hmm. we are looking at sorry, just A dollar ten. For propane on, on a gallon, uh, a dollar for CNG on a gallon equivalent, um, and then with our gasoline, we're at about two dollars and seventeen cents. So,
7: I just ask because when you're looking at the delta, you know the the incremental cost that that there's you know an alternative there is a cost savings as well to the Commonwealth and the Oh, yes,
13: and and with, with, it's kind of a compounding effect. With with the delta cost itself, that allows the agencies and, if approved, the localities to realize those savings immediately. So instead of having to have that capital uh, investment up front, we are giving them the opportunity to realize those fuel cost savings from day one.
7: So I just thought that was an important piece, but I didn't know quite what it was. Thank you. Mr.
11: Connors? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you Hayes, for this presentation. Um, I'm just curious as to why there are more school buses that have been converted. Those are huge fleets inside any county. That's a good
13: question. Um, The challenge is that delta. Uh, When you talk about uh, school buses particularly, you can get in the range of $30,000 of additional upfront cost. Now, you'll realize that savings over time with with the gap in, in the fuel cost. Um, But that is a challenge for localities to take that step uh, and put that money up front. But there are localities that are taking a look at it. Chesterfield County is one example that that they are taking a serious look at making that upfront investment. And if we can help push them over the finish line, I think that's what we're going to try. In
11: addition to uh, continuing with the CMAX investments, uh, are there any other steps we can take to expand this program with infrastructure?
13: Other things in in terms of the governor's, uh, the governor's priorities towards alternative fuel conversion and infrastructure conversion is working with uh, private entities to try and cost share on, on possibly infrastructure deployment. So if there are high volume fleet companies, uh, that aren't necessarily taking that extra step but are interested, they don't want to make that capital investment on the infrastructure. If there are opportunities that the state can cost share uh, in terms of a public-private partnership, uh, we, we certainly are looking at, at that. Uh, the challenge with the infrastructure, again, is the, that is, those are very expensive to put in on the front end. Uh, but if you can get them on the front end through partnerships, uh, then um, then you can you can find those ways to, to get more and more alternative fuel vehicles. With this particular tool, we're kind of looking on the alternative fuel side, push towards the infrastructure, but we are looking at ways that we can push the infrastructure that would increase the, the conversion of fuel.
11: I mean, do you know if we have, I'm sure we have the assets, the visitor, visitor centers and welcome centers and other real estate assets that to provide some you're, you're exactly
13: right, right. and those are things that uh, that, we'll, that we are looking to looking into. Um, we, we are we are we are looking to find the state assets that we can use, and we are looking to find the right private partners that, that we can we can collaborate with to, to kind of put those two together to get us towards more uh, infrastructure deployment.
2: Thank you. Okay. Chair, uh, um, we don't have action on this tomorrow, but this is, is, this a, is this a policy that, uh, uh, that we just need, to, I think, to
10: change? And so, Nick, do you have a comment on that? Mr. Chairman, members of the board, I think what the administration is looking for is some recognition. Of this support for this policy in the six-year improvement program resolution that the board would consider in June to make it clear to the local communities this is an option that's available to them. Okay, so next month we'll come to you with a resolution uh, um,
2: recommending that we allow this type of incentive uh, for for this. And I have to say we've talked about this over several years. I think this is actually a very very good. I won't call it a compromise, but the right way to incentivize this. Uh, so. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, Mr. Mall. Secretary, I,
11: I, I agree and support the program. However, it is a very capital and expensive
3: program in terms of converting the equipment, the compression equipment, the ongoing maintenance of the equipment. Um, and even with the current pricing, I still think it's a good investment because it's instead of the old infrastructure. But it is the more you can get participation from the private sector in sharing that cost and that risk.
4: I think it's the right way. Mr. Top?
7: Just so I'm clear, um, the $1.3 million that is annually um, in the six-year plan, is the idea to open up that money to the localities, or
11: to...? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. The idea That's is to open right.
13: that, that particular fund to those particular dollars that are going into that fund up to
4: localities.
6: Okay, great. Right. Yes. Good. Okay. Right. Just, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Cole. Uh, just one... Uh, one comment in regards to uh, Mr. Connor's comment about rest areas. I think one of the problems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the problems that we have right now is there's a ban on commercialization of rest areas along the interstate. And so you can provide electrification free, but it's pretty hard to get a, a, uh, a private partner too excited about uh, providing something free. So that, that federal law would have to be changed. I Um, any more questions of
2: uh, Mr. here? Okay. We will we'll consider Sharon. this and put this. Thank you for taking the time. I would ask that the uh, – uh, where are we going from here, Nick? Are you going to – House Bill 2 is going to come up. Um, in order to keep the feedback down, we've had to turn the mics down a little bit, so I would ask the speakers to really speak up. I don't think we're going to have a problem with that with Mr. Donahue, but uh, other speakers, I'd ask them to speak up because <laughs> of um, – Uh, Keeping the mics low to keep the feedback down. So now, if we thought the first topic may be controversial, I'm expecting a lively debate on this. Let's just say we have we got two hours, so probably what we'll do is right around. We I think I think this is going to take pretty much the rest of this time. We'll see how it goes. Probably we'll get to a point in the next 45 minutes to an hour. though, take a quick break, uh, get a box lunch, and continue on. So anyway.
10: Mr. Donahue, well, Mr. Chairman, the members of the board, Nick Donahue, and I'm joined here today by Tommy DeJulian, who is leading up the HB2 working group team, as well as Chad Tucker, who's really led a lot of the scoring of the pilot testing results that we're going to present to you here today. So before I go through the presentation, what we're doing today is really kind of providing the board with a summary of feedback by different category areas, as well as changes that as staff, we are recommending to the board based on that feedback. I think that will probably take about 45 minutes, just on kind of the weighting frameworks and the measures. Then we're going to go into something that I expect will take a lot of time, We'll have a lot of questions on um, particular, is the pilot testing results. So we have scored 38 projects, um, and we have results for all of those projects. We have ranked them based to their uh, raw score. We have ranked them based on their benefit costs using the total cost. And we've also ranked them based on their benefit costs using HP2 only scores. And so we have all of that uh, Here for you today, we also have examples of how we've gone through that so you can really kind of understand what's behind these numbers that you're seeing. And so that's what we have for you here today. I kind of pausing here at the beginning, because I think what we as staff are asking of you all today, in addition to just kind of your questions as we move through this, is at the end, if there's any outstanding concerns that you still have, we would really like to hear those today or get something from you all via email or phone call over the next seven days so that as staff goes back, we can make sure as we put together the final package for your consideration in June, any remaining concerns have the opportunity to be considered and vetted as we move forward. So I'm going to start with the waiting frameworks, and I want to say this is the area far and away where we receive the most feedback. Um, from local communities as well as the regional entities. Uh, every single person, they may not have had a comment on a measure, they may not have had a comment on the process, everybody had a comment on how we were valuing these different measures in their areas. And again, far and away the most frequent comment was, my area type should be a different one. And so we heard a lot of folks that said, well, I'm B, I really think I should be area type C." Here are the reasons why. There were a lot of folks who, if they were C, they really thought they should be area type D. And candidly, in a lot of the regional meetings that we went to, the verbal comment we got is, well, if Northern Virginia is A, I know I shouldn't be a B. Or if Northern Virginia is an A, I know I shouldn't be a C, so I should be a D. And it was really, to certain regards, people just didn't want to have their projects considered in a way, manner similar to Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads. And so we've really kind of taken that into account as we've looked at the different weighting frameworks. One of the other things that people talked about is, you know, what's the right weight in different areas? And in a lot of the rural areas, we really heard pretty strong feedback. that They thought economic development and safety needed to be bumped up a little bit from where they were in the draft that was put out in March. And then also in this region, in Fredericksburg, we heard some concern that the congestion weighting was probably not as high as they uh, thought it should be. Uh, We also heard from a few folks that even when they weren't in areas over 200,000, they wanted the land use measure to be available to them. Um, and then the other comment we heard a lot of, and I want to note on this one because we did not make any changes based on this, is there were people who thought maybe even the MPO and PDC level was too large of an area for a waiting framework to apply. And as staff, um, based on the feedback we've heard from you all, we've really tried to make sure there's a discrete number of waiting frameworks and they apply at that kind of regional level. We're not getting down to the individual locality level where we have 140 Kind of variations of how this would work. And so we have not made any changes based on that. The other thing that we'll need to work with as a, on the board in the coming months is people really want to understand, okay, I know this is going to be my framework for round one and probably for round two. After how many numbers of rounds will take place before they have the opportunity to move say from C to B, from A to B or vice versa or to tweak the percentages? Within those waiting frameworks and those that's kind of an outstanding issue and we haven't addressed that in the update but I think we have some time to really think through that issue. The feedback we generally provided is that we anticipate they will be in the same waiting framework unchanged for at least two rounds as we get to really see how this works um, but again that is going to be a decision of the board. And so here are the proposed revisions to the waiting frameworks. The chart you see in the top Is what we proposed in March and then you see the chart on the bottom showing the staff suggested revisions based on the public comment that we received. Uh, Staff today is uh, is not recommending any changes to category A which again is kind of the more congestion oriented metric and I do want to note we did hear comments again from Northern Virginia and Fredericksburg that they thought that should be higher so we'd be interested in the board's feedback on that. On category B we made several changes Uh, really it was lowering the land use percentage from 15 and increasing safety to 20. And so if you kind of look across that spectrum, uh, accessibility, which is focused on access to jobs and travel options would be the top weighted uh, measure. And then safety and economic development would be kind of tied for second, going to congestion. And then finally, uh, environmental quality and land use would be in that third tier in the category B areas. In category C, we uh, increased economic development. and. Uh, as well as uh, congestion and reduced accessibility and safety based on the feedback that we received. And then in category D, we decreased accessibility and increased economic development. Again, a lot of the very smaller rural communities stressed that they thought economic development was the number one issue they had, and they really wanted to see that be the top-weighted percentage um, as they looked at the different measures that we said were important in their areas. Uh, In addition to revising the frameworks, We have also kind of made some modifications to where we think they should apply. And so this map, again, shows you what was proposed in the March draft policy guide there. And as you can see, you really have the three large urban areas falling under category A, again, with congestion being the highest. You then have some of the more faster growing areas in the Winchester, northern Shenandoah, Culpeper, and also kind of Roanoke areas being in category B. And then you have a mix of areas really in the category C and D based on kind of either safety or economic development analysis. Um, Many regional entities told us that we got this wrong um, our first time around and we didn't think we were going to get it completely right so we're really happy to get that feedback and so we have proposed some very very significant changes to the map based on that feedback. Um, So if you take a look at this category A Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads would stay there and again by law Congestion mitigation has to be the highest-weighted factor there. So they are always going to be in Category B because of some of the enactment clauses on House Bill 2. We heard from the Fredericksburg region that they really thought it was important that the FAMPO, the metropolitan area in Fredericksburg, be similarly evaluated with Northern Virginia as a lot of their commuters commute to Northern Virginia and congestion is really their top issue there. And they see that as kind of key to many of the issues they face. Um, If you look at Category B, there's a lot less areas that are now in Category B based on the feedback that we heard. Um, So the Richmond area requested a downgrade because they said they don't have as much congestion as those other areas and when we went back and looked at the numbers that was accurate, Um, they really don't have the same levels of congestion that Northern Virginia, Fredericksburg and Hampton Roads have. And then we also in B have Charlottesville and the Roanoke area. The Roanoke area is in there because land use is required to be a consideration, and they indicated they wanted to keep that there. And then Charlottesville also said that they thought land use was something that was important for them to have considered as they weighted their factors, and so we added them to the B weighting. And then you'll really see there's a broad swath of green in those other kind of uh, faster growing areas, but still don't really have a lot of congestion. That's under C, where you kind of have a lot of factors at equal weighting of 25% between safety, economic development, and accessibility. And then you'll see basically blue is all the much more rural areas of a commonwealth where economic development is weighted very highly at 35 percent, and safety is 30 uh, percent. So I'm going to turn it over to Tommy DeJulia now, who's going to walk through some of the public comments we've received on the proposed measures, as well as some of the changes that the staff are recommending. But before Tommy gets into that, I just wanted to kind of pause and see if the board had any comments on the proposed staff changes. To the waiting frameworks mr Grozinski. uh yes nick uh, we've talked about this i've had conversations with a number of
1: legislators uh also with uh, chairman noe of NVTA. and i know by by statute uh, that category a has to have congestion mitigation as its top percentage category but i think we are underserving that with 35 percent and my suggestion would be that uh, we move that to 50% and the second ranking be given to accessibility. Mm -hmm. I think the two go hand in hand. Uh, And I'd like you to consider that. Um, I've already also talked to Chairman Noah, and I know one of our considerations moving forward was to try to tie in NBTA's percentages with what we're having for HB2. And the chairman who may be testifying tomorrow in the public session, said uh, that's a dialogue that will be open for discussion uh, at nbta to get those more in line should we raise it to that 50 percent uh, level so uh, i think mr dyke may have some comment on that as well yeah
3: i would uh i wholeheartedly support it and in fact i would go a little further and say at least to be at least 50 percent if not higher because i think that sends a clear message that congestion is by far the number one issue in Northern Virginia and Hampton Road. So I, I thoroughly support what uh, what Pierre has just
1: mentioned. And it's, it, it, it's also, uh, I think, the perception of the public and what the citizens feel. And and I think what our board members will see today is, you know, to talk about congestion relief being only 35%, even though we may know this, the categories in depth kind of tie into it, uh, I think to say that it's got to be 50% up here, uh, yeah. because it's, it's just the number one issue. Mr. Chairman? Uh, yes, just wait. Just, uh, just the first, first reaction to that is it's probably 100%
2: accurate. probably is 50% of your, your issue, maybe 70%. But I think all these <coughs>
1: formulas are also set up for everybody to remain
4: competitive
1: in terms of the scoring. You can't, you can't just – I wouldn't call it arbitrary. You can't just change one without looking how it impacts its, its competitiveness against the rest of the Commonwealth. So I, I think there's more to it than just acknowledging it, because I certainly think you're absolutely accurate. I don't even come up here unless I have to because I <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a factor that has to be considered. And, it, and we're aware that it's you basically us our, ourselves in Hampton Roads that are yeah, right. the category A. So I understand where you're coming. From. Go ahead. Uh, well, Mr.
5: Chairman, I think to, to echo Marty's—I mean, I don't know what that would do to. You'd be interested to see what that would do to the scoring project. I'd be interested in seeing that before I'd be willing to say that I, I agree with that. I also think you run the risk if you start to get, I mean, maybe 50 is okay, if you start getting, you know, the General Assembly said, we have to consider these other factors. Right. And I'm reading this letter from the Northern Virginia Transportation Alliance says, we'll just put everything else at five. Well, that's not what the General Assembly wanted to do. They, they, they wanted us to take safety into consideration. They wanted the environmental quality to be taken into consideration. They wanted, so we have to be careful about just loading it all into, into congestion. Um,
1: that's why I think the 50 percent is a balance. That, but, but that's going to roll. Everything else is 10 percent.
3: Yeah, but, but but take it into consideration. It doesn't mean it has to have a significant number. Uh, I, that's why I, I think what Gary's talking about makes yeah. a lot of sense. It doesn't mean that everything has to be 15 percent. It means that you have to look at it, you have to factor it in, and if you think it's 5 percent, then that's what it ought to be. Matches, there's nothing magic about that.
4: Well, I was going to make a
2: comment. and Mr. Grozinski sort of hit on it. I mean, public perception. I'm not so sure it helps the project score better. I mean, I mean, in other words, I would, I would just caution you to. I mean, from your personal perspective, perception. Uh, just, I, I think you ought to look at scores of projects. Now, I'm not suggesting that that doesn't get over the, the personal perception issue or the public perception. I think it's right, um, but. Um, when, we're going to go through that later. I know you all have had a chance to look, and you don't, you're not supposed to know where these projects are, but it's kind of hard to figure out, and you can run it. You, you might find, just quite frankly, being honest, that it may not give you the result you're looking for. I'm not suggesting at all to you that it isn't public perception needs to be. I do, I'll do. go up on, on the other side here. I don't know we want to get to a policy where we are just... It says at least. You can interpret that as twenty-one percent if there's five, and in these areas it's actually six, right? Because you have to take into account for land use. So, just throw out there. I mean, you don't want to throw everything out because it's sort of. Not so much the rest of the state. I'm not sure
1: gives you the results you yeah, I mean, I, mean it may, I don't have any idea how we're going to change the scores, but I think we I think we'd all be proved to see that if we're
5: going to yeah. make that change, right? And, or have a comment about what what the experts think it would do, but. The, the, the thing to me I mean I think I think that we need to have a significant component of land use up here and when we get to that category you know I, I think we've created some of these transportation problems because of land use planning that has not been accounted for in, in, in the past and so I don't want I don't think we need to compound those mistakes you know I mean, we'll see in the helicopter tour. We'll fly over rooftops, and you count how many cul-de-sacs you see. And you follow those cul-de-sacs down to the secondary road, and then they go right to the primary, and then you'll see the congestion. So, to me, land use is important, an important factor. And you know, it's always been at 10%. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure it should be more up here, but that's just my own personal.
3: Well, can I just add one thing? I I can't overemphasize the importance of congestion. And I also want to emphasize when you're flying around in a helicopter, to not only think about looking at it from the helicopter, but think if you were down sitting in the middle of it, (laughs) I think 50% would be really low, to be perfectly honest with you. So just take into consideration where you are and it's built to
1: cause those two. I don't negate the importance of the other categories. Uh, I'm not advocating that 75%, everything else is 5. No, I I think the priority is congestion relief, along with accessibility, and the others be given maybe an equal amount. One of the things you'll find here, though,
4: in uh, Northern Virginia is the uh, county, cities, and towns. Uh, And we're going to
2: have to uh, have a little bit of a rocket docket today. So I will formally uh, call back into session the workshop uh, that we'll, we'll resume where we left off yesterday. But before we do, do that, a couple of quick things. Um, we're going to go through House Bill two. We're trying to do that in the next hour or so. But I want to point out, even though you're not going to, you have to vote on this uh, these measures that we can use to start scoring. Two things. This is not the end of the input. In fact, it's probably the beginning. Uh, there's been a multitude of hours put in to get to this point, and I know some have suggested we ought to have a workshop, uh, and and I think that is a good uh, suggestion. But I think that would be most beneficial once we have numbers. I mean, actual projects being scored. Uh, other than that, we're, we would just be having the discussions that the staff has been having, and your input's been great. So my plan will be. So we move forward with uh, this, we would then, we have a year until it's actually fully effective in, in use and used in allocating monies. Um, so we will have a workshop, my guess it'll be sometime in the fall, Mr. John Hura, based on when we start scoring actual projects. We get a run and we'll sit down and take a full day or whatever we need to really go through and analyze how these things are impacted. So you have something to judge against instead of just you know, out there without having some parameters put around it. So, I just want to let you know um, uh, we we fully expect to have continuing adjustments as we work through this. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, and I'll I'll uh, mention this again in the formal session. Uh, uh, we've been working to say exactly, give some parameters not only to the board but to the public and how we're going to move forward under. Uh, what we discussed yesterday in regard to 66 proc- uh, procurement financing options. So uh, at the formal session, I'll, I'll make an announcement as to how that's going to happen and how you can expect to have input into that. So a couple things there, um, and what we will do today is we're going to have to break at 10. I'm hoping we'll be close to being done, if not, but at, at 10 we will break um, to move into public comment. So if we're not done the, this session, I'll suspend it, move into formal session, have public comment, we'll do the action items, uh, and then if we have to, we'll come back into this to finalize a couple things. So that's the plan for today. Um, And with that, we'll turn it back over to Mr. Donahue, and we'll continue on with uh, House Bill 2.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman members of the board. Good morning. I'm going to pick up where we left off yesterday on the House Bill 2 presentation. As you remember, we've walked through a few of the different metrics and exactly how we've scored them. We have three of those left and so we have accessibility, economic development, and the land use factors and then the last thing we have is the overall scores. Really walking through, looking at those based on the raw score, relative score with total cost, and the relative score with the House Bill 2 eligible cost. So in accessibility, there were three things that were examined in the pilot scoring. First was the Uh, cumulative increase in access to jobs, Uh, the second was the cumulative increase in access to jobs for disadvantaged populations, and the final was access to travel options. With all of these projects, what we have been using is a GIS tool that we developed specifically for the House Bill 2 process that has an input of where the location of all jobs and residents are today within a given region. It breaks the region up into zones and then we map the existing transportation network and look about how far can someone travel and how many jobs can they reach within a 45 minute period. We then add the improvement into that GIS tool and see how that changes the number of jobs or the distance that can be traveled and look at what is the cumulative benefit or change and increase that takes place for one of those projects. Um, We're still working on this. Tool, um, we're going to need to spend some additional, probably resources, to make it streamlined, to get it to work a little faster and to make it more nimble than where it is today. But it's been a pretty helpful tool and has you know, been eye-opening as we've looked at the results. And so again, just to kind of walk you through it, pretend this is you know a region here, and we've cut it up into 15 zones. For what the tool does is, when they're without the project, it looks at zone one and it sees, goes to each and every other zone and figures out how far. Can you go and how many jobs are in those zones and can you get there in 45 minutes? And once it does that for one zone, it then moves to the next zone and does the exact same tool, which gives you kind of the cumulative access to jobs within the region without the project. One thing I should notice: you kind of see travel from uh, block zone two to zone one. That's probably a pretty short trip, and it gives higher credit for those shorter trips than it does for a longer trip because most people are willing, you know, 100% of people will make a five-minute, 10-minute drive. Maybe not 100% of people will make a 45-minute, 60-minute drive. And so you get less credit the further away a particular job is under this tool. Uh, Then it goes to all the other blocks and does the same thing. and gives you that kind of cumulative access for the region. Then what we do is, after you've analyzed that, you look at, in the blue here, is what you could reach without the improvement. That red is kind of the extra jobs and zones that can be reached uh, in this region because that improvement has been made to the overall network and again you go zone by zone and do that and then do it through all the zones and what you get at the end is kind of an overall change in the cumulative access to jobs within a region for the disadvantaged access to jobs we do something similar however we focus on um, disadvantaged populations which is defined in the pilot tool as low income elderly uh, minority and then uh, you know, non-English speakers. And so you kind of do the same thing that we talked about for the entire population, but really focus it in on this kind of social equity aspect to examine whether or not these disadvantaged populations are also benefiting with regard to access to jobs the same way the overall population as a whole is. Um, The last part of the accessibility score is kind of the improved access to travel options. And under this one, we evaluate projects to see if they enhance non-SOV modal options and they can get a point for each kind of modal option that they enhance. And then we scale the project to really understand the impact (coughs) that it has by looking at the number of users that would be using that mode. And that is how we kind of calculate this last part of the accessibility score, which again is 20% of the overall accessibility score. And so if you take a look uh, here, this is the top 10 projects in the pilot scoring using the accessibility score. The number one project is the 15 expansion buses. Again, we talked about this project yesterday. This is a a set of buses that are uh, building off of the existing metro network. And because they really have that synergy with the metro rail network, they have a really large number of jobs that increases access to because it serves as kind of a last mile or two connection to some very, very dense activity centers. Um, If you move down here, you'll see kind of uh, auxiliary lanes and other things that are addressing bottlenecks on major interstate corridors and as one might expect really improving some of those allows people in given regions to really reach a, a larger number of jobs than they otherwise would be able to. And then um, you see just the multimodal access score, the top one there as this is constructed today is an improvement to interstate that adds a general purpose lane and an HOV lane and the reason that's the highest is it's expected to be a large number of HOV users on that facility and that's providing a lot of access to carpooling, vanpooling and other transit opportunities. Uh, Here's the bottom 10 score and what you see is on accessibility, uh, there's a fair number of projects that didn't really register a large amount of benefit either in the access to jobs or in the access to travel options. And one of the things we see here is using the 45 minute window in some places, most of the jobs today, can already be reached pretty easily within a 40, even 20 minute types of windows. And so while the improvement may have uh, provided a shorter route somewhere or may have reduced the overall travel time for each location, it didn't change the ability of the average worker to get to more jobs within that 45 minute window. Um, So a few things, uh, kind of observations and challenges with this is one, uh, as I said, this tool is new. Uh, It's been used in other parts of the country, but it's new here to Virginia and we're creating this on a statewide basis. Um, And so it doesn't currently have a transit module that's functioning. And so when we evaluate transit projects, we're actually just capturing the benefits of taking users off the roadway network. We need to really make sure that we also capture, say, if we're improving VRE, the new number of jobs that people might be able to reach in an hour on that VRE or other transit systems. And so we're working on that um, the other thing is right now the amount of processing time uh, that this takes on a staff level is pretty high and so we're going to really need to work to streamline this because again we, we input all of the land use for the entire state in there and we you know, have to go by individually and change the assumptions of speed and travel for each individual project to run this tool uh, for all of them. It's similar to what you do in a long range plan for regional models and statewide models. Um, we just need to find some ways to make it work a little faster. And then the other thing is the results do seem to have a correlation with job density. Um, and this, this plays the same way in both urban and rural areas. So just looking at the activity centers and that would make sense if you're talking about access to jobs, are we making it easier for someone to say, get into downtown Salem or Roanoke, which is kind of that job density area within that region. And the same things kind of in Northern Virginia, are we getting access into Tyson's? Are we creating better access into the Pentagon things of that nature? And there's, there's just a correlation there was an observation the staff had. No questions? Mr. Fraylor is not here yet.
4: But... <laughs> well, I was a little
10: nervous when uh, Mr. Tucker and Mr. Julian had to go home. Uh, they had our pre-existing our, commitments. The um, they're, they had, they're the ones who scored this, <laughs> so I got a little nervous <laughs> yes. yesterday.
4: <laughs>
2: <That's right. laughs> uh, yes, Mr.
11: Connors. Nick, as you all know, this came up in our fan phone meeting that you attended uh,
2: two months, last month.
11: Uh, any other regions uh, have problems with this definition?
10: Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Connors, and members of the board, what Mr. Connors is referring to is when I presented to the Fredericksburg area, MPO, uh, there was a lot of concern that many folks in that region actually commute longer than 45 minutes in their car to jobs. And I think um, we did not hear that concern in other regions. But I also want to stress, this isn't measuring someone's actual trip. What we're looking at is their opportunity to access jobs. And so even if we're not putting in improvements that might allow someone to travel, say, from Spotsylvania County all the way to K Street, which I suspect some folks in that area do, that's 100. And, you know, that's about an hour and 10 minutes even in free flow. Um, so it's significantly longer during rush hour, but even improvements on 95 will capture other parts and activity centers in the Northern Virginia area, which will help increase the cumulative access to jobs. And so I think there was a bit of a misunderstanding with some of the board members where they thought this was looking at their actual commutes, not the opportunity to access additional jobs. Because I don't think we can measure what is happening today, because people change jobs and other things happen. What we need to understand is the ability to access those jobs, not what your, your commute is today, because it could be very different tomorrow. And so we, that this is not an issue that was raised in other regions. I um, uh, just want to
2: make a comment here. A lot of these uh, measures we sometimes uh think just in technical terms, and, and you know, in terms of trying to measure something. But if you've been reading the press lately, uh, it's just been another Harvard uh, review done, uh, the actual, uh, what transportation uh, options and access, how that directly correlates not only uh, to mobility in the transportation system, but upward mobility in life. In other words, so um, while we sometimes tend to think that uh, it's just uh, accessibility is something where... These have real life consequences and more and more <laughs> studies are showing your, your, uh, accessibility to various options, uh, being able to, is also directly tied, uh, to your ability to improve or better your position, whether it's financial or otherwise, uh, in life. So very important that, uh, we keep that in mind sometimes as we you know, frame some of these technical issues we're talking about, but that's really at the end of the day what we're trying to uh, to accomplish. And I think accessibility is is obviously uh, when we d- tend to think of it. How does it connect in? It really has some very social impacts also.
1: Yeah, Mr. Tom, um,
7: a lot of conversations that I've had has centered around using um, percentage increase as opposed to
10: the absolute number of jobs, and I wonder if you can speak to that. Uh, Yes, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Tongta, the other, I think, comment we heard on the accessibility, there was the issue raised by FAMPO, there was also the issue of central destinations, which we've removed due to kind of the uh, subjectivity of that definition. The other thing that has uh, been raised most prevalently in this area is whether we should be measuring the pure number of cumulative increase in jobs or the percentage increase in jobs and as the staff we kind of went back and did some sensitivity testing, not using discrete projects but just example projects to look at what that could mean. We ultimately did not think that was an appropriate recommendation to the board because at the end of the day we're dividing by cost. And again, some of those projects that are more costly may have the same percentage increase to jobs as a less costly project but it could also be four times as many raw in the raw number. And so we wanted to create something that we thought was a fair analysis. And so we're scared the percentages might create a bias towards smaller projects uh, compared to uh, kind of something that looks at the overall increase dividing by cost. Um, but that, that is something, uh, members of the board, we have heard. Uh, I think we heard it from the Culpeper region, and we also, I believe, heard it from the Petersburg uh, area, if I recall correctly. Okay. I'm uh, on. The next factor area is the economic development um, and I do want to say this has been one of the toughest um, areas to crack and you know based on the discussion yesterday on reliability uh, we're going to you know again look for any additional feedback in the coming weeks but we're going to unless we hear otherwise we're probably going to work trying to incorporate that into this with probably a proposed weighting of 60 percent for the square footage of development 20 percent for this intermodal access and then 20 percent for reliability so again I just want to remind the board that was not used in the pilot testing because we were developing that reliability measure when we uh, put in place the pilot testing. But you probably will see that change in the final version of this factor area. So the square footage of development supported uh, has been the thing where we've gotten the widest range of responses as we tried to do the pilot scoring. And it was the area where we really think we need the most work to do in tightening up the definitions. As I talked about yesterday, When we got local input from a lot of the folks looking at what is the type of growth that's submitted, we had some people that did very kind of detailed analysis and looked at the sites that were directly accessed and only counted square footage on those sites. And then we had other people that drew a five-mile buffer and went in and counted every undeveloped parcel and the maximum allowable zoning and said, we're going to create this much economic development, whether or not the improvement actually was going to create real growth there. And so we've really tried to kind of tighten this up and what we're going to be doing is looking at how far along proposed developments within the project area are moving forward and again this can be a new site an expansion of an existing site or redevelopment of a currently underutilized site and the further along you are the more points you get so you'll get a point if you're consistent and referenced in the local comprehensive and economic development strategy there um, you'll get another point If you're consistent with a regional economic development strategy, most PDCs develop these as do some of the MPOs, and so we'll be looking both at those, is this something that's actually talked about? Are are you talking about attracting this type of industry in your regional economic development plans or not? And if you are, you'll get more points along because it's consistent with the broader planning that's been done in that region.
6: Oh, Mr. Sorry. Question on, when we talk about square footage that these projects support, we're we talking about commercial, retail, residential combined, commercial,
3: industrial. How is that broken out?
10: Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Cashwood, it's essentially everything excluding residential okay. development. Uh, and, I, and I think institutional is probably not considered as well. Um, but That is spelled out in detail in the dependencies. But it's basically job producing development, not the housing where the people <coughs> might be. Uh, then we'll also give you points as to whether or not the sites that where the development might be located, how far along is it? So does the comp plan or zoning call for this type of development on that site? Um, is there a site plan pending or approved for that site? And are there utilities either programmed or in place on that site? And they can get a maximum of up to five points. And then for each site, those points are going to be scaled based on a set of factors. And these factors really came... Uh, the need for these came out in the pilot scoring. And so we're going to scale it based on whether or not the project provides direct access to the proposed site. So in some of the pilot scorings, we had a, one example was an interstate widening. The interstate itself, we were widening between two interchanges, and there probably was not a lot of direct economic development that was happening because of just that widening. But within a mile, there was a primary roadway that for a long time has been a major commercial corridor with a lot of planned office space and other development that was coming online regardless of whether or not that facility was put in place. And so we really need to try and distinguish whether or not the improvements are directly enhancing the access or if there just happens to be growth that's proximate to this improvement that might benefit from it. And so again, direct access would get 100 percent of these square footage benefits, while indirect access would only receive 50 percent. The other thing that we saw in the pilot scoring is, again, people were, some people looked very narrowly and some people looked out as far as five miles. And we really don't think that projects five miles away are receiving the same type of benefit as projects within a mile. And so once we've done the scaling based on direct access or indirect access, we'll divide that square footage by the number of miles it is away. And so if it's within a mile, you'll get the full credit. And then for each mile moving away, that will be reduced by the you know, number of miles that it is. So if something's five miles away and it's 100 square feet, we divide that by five and say you're only getting credit for 20 square footage because that improvement is so far away from this development, from this improvement, excuse me.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Nick, uh,
5: um, it, it seems to me that makes a lot of sense for secondary maybe even primary improvements. But you brought up the interstate, <laughs> and it sounds to me like a, you know a new uh, a new six miles of interstate could have an economic development impact for 30 miles. You know, if, if, like I'm thinking about a mega project kind of thing and how they would score on this. And it may be that they wouldn't be. That, I'm thinking about a new a new route. I yes, sorry, finish the one or 73 or something like that how would they score on something
10: like that uh, mr chairman i don't know the specifics of those roads so i can't respond to yeah. how they might score what i would say is this is the area that was has been the toughest for staff since the very beginning right. it's still the area where the staff are the least comfortable mm-hmm. with what we propose i think the really tough thing is on the rest of these we can draw correlation we can draw some causality between them safety, congestion, accessibility, we can really kind of quantify some of those and with confidence say this improvement resulted in this change. On economic development, that's it's very tough. There's a whole host of other factors that go into that. And I think our concern, while I agree with you that say a new interstate or widening of an interstate for six miles in particular is gonna probably have economic competitiveness benefits for a region well beyond this five mile buffer that we're allowing things to be considered. The real question is where do we draw the line and how do we draw that? And I think a lot of the other scoring factors will try to capture that competitiveness aspect. We are really trying to focus on where we can draw distinctions that this improvement likely resulted in some of this growth taking place in this area. One of the things we heard from our peer workshop, remember last um, November and September, we brought in folks from across the country who have done these types of exercises they said economic development is the toughest because it's really just hard to make that link. And the thing they said is don't give credit to people if they just say widen this road and something great will happen. You need to make people demonstrate that they've thought through this process and they know widening this road is gonna help me have this development in this site, this development is gonna be this type of industry. They may not know the company, but they have a strategy that they're trying to enhance that they can demonstrate this project plays a role in because that m- keeps this process a bit more honest that probably will miss some benefits, uh, Mr. Fralin, but I think from the staff's perspective, we needed some way of being able to say there's a relationship between the improvement and the development that took place. And, and I agree with that.
9: I,
5: I understand the fine line that you, you have to, I mean, it's a little bit of a Potter Stewart kind of situation. You know it you know when you see it. <laughs> it's hard to define it. How much discretion is in this score? I mean, it doesn't look like it's a lot of discretion on the staff part to give to award points for something that Um, this is just a mathematical form there's no Mr.
10: Mr. Chairman there's a lot of local input that will go into this measure and so we're going to be looking to the locals to really identify those sites show us the regional economic development strategy the local economic development strategy and kind of demonstrate how it is consistent or referenced within that and so there is probably not a lot of staff discretion but there's some local and Regional discretion that exists within this metric. You know, I. Uh, oh,
2: am sorry. I'm go not, ahead. No, go ahead. I was just thinking yesterday, uh, uh, and we formally thanked uh, Scott uh, Miss Casperis for the flyovers of the Northern Virginia district yesterday and looking at it. But when I was, we had a lot of discussion uh, individually in the in the copters or helicopter, but when you look at when your comment about uh, you know the economic development of widening a road and compare that to the congestion mitigation of the road in other words they're not always compatible if you want to you know and, and that's what was concerning me a little bit if we just put a, all our eggs in one basket on a measure now i'm just throwing this a quick note on a measure um, you know, we may not capture exactly what you're talking about. In other words, that you know, look, uh, yes, we want to widen this, we want to connect A to B, but if we don't generate economic development or opportunities between A to B, you know, have we really accomplished what we're doing? So, I, um, uh, in, in your comments, you're right. If you put a, you know, a megasite in and it, 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 you know, you improve the interstate for three or four miles, you probably draw from 30, 40 miles away. I mean, in terms of that. So, I just uh, point out that a lot of these tools, and I, I'm not suggesting there shouldn't be emphasis, but um, to score one well in one may not help you score well in another. Is all up in, in that regard. So, I think it gets back to what is, we want to build the roads for, uh, and, uh, um, and and I think. Most of the time, it's just more than one measure. Now, I'm not downplaying, please, I'm not, like Mr. President, I'm not downplaying. I think, I mean, I certainly see the congestion issues in, in Northern Virginia, no doubt. But I just, I just caution that, uh, that uh, when we do one thing to the mutual exclusion of others, it may not be the results that we want. And, and uh, Mr. Brennan, we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, what we're going to do after this uh, presentation um, and uh, work uh, next month you will actually be adopting the. Uh, just make clear again, that's not the final. I think that what we'll do is when we get actual projects to score, we're going to have a workshop and we can sit down and actually see what these things do. instead of having uh, these discussions, and I, I'm not instead not up in addition to having these discussions because I think that's when we can really see, how these measures are going to impact, and did we get it? So just throw that comment out uh, as to I think the real value will be when we score these and see how we compare. Ms. Valentine, you had something you want to talk about.
7: Um, I, yes, thank you. In our work session in Lynchburg, one of the concerns that came up about square footage was expansion versus new development. Because sometimes with expansion, because you have a, an existing business, they have the cafeteria, the boardroom, the, they have a lot of the infrastructure in place, but an expansion can actually create a large number of jobs. And so they may not be able to compete fairly if we're just looking at square footage. And I just didn't know if that had been considered enough.
10: Uh, Mr. Chairman, that is one of the things we really struggled with on this metric is again, we needed something we thought to scale it by since we'll be dividing by the cost to make sure there's no biases between small, large, or medium sized projects. And everywhere we went, we kind of, we really talked to people. Should we be using jobs? Should we be using square footage? Uh, Should we be using, you know, the uh, expected private investment? And we basically could not, there was no consensus statewide. And in many areas, they said, well, you tell us we're not sure what it should be. We, we kind of defer to you all. And so we the kind of, we did look at jobs, which was going to be a way of doing that, mm-hmm. kind of taking into account the fact that in some instances, square footage might not be the best proxy for what's taking place and there's that change there. But we just couldn't come up with a way where particularly when you have a site that's going to come online and has not yet or is earlier in the development process. We can't quantify what the jobs are and we didn't want to end up in a place where we had to put a burden on the local government where they had to actually have a company in hand who would tell them a number of jobs before we would be willing to count that as an economic benefit. So I think one of the, we, we did not resolve that issue, but I think one of the things that we can look at doing in the future is maybe we can put an other column in the kind of uh, information that localities provide to us because as the Secretary said, this is the tool for the board. You're not required to score it down there. So maybe we can kind of have, you know, other comments you'd like to provide to the board for consideration. They can say, this is, you know, there's some, a lot of expansion here. We expect a high number of jobs even though our square footage is low or other things of that nature. So we can provide that to you all um, as we move forward. But we couldn't figure out a way to work that into the overall scoring process just because it's, it proved to be too difficult to quantify jobs.
6: And
2: that's a really good point uh, because, uh, you know, again, You make the decision, and you get the score. You're not going to say, "Well, I think that's better." I'm going to send it back to score. You make a comment, and the law just says, "Tell us why you chose to do this." You know, so I want to make that point out too. You know, you know, there are some though. I will point out to infer, and I think the law does infer that we want to try to use this measure. Not try. We're going to use this measure, but it shouldn't take away your overall judgment as long as we disclose why in our judgment we decided to do it. That's fully what the intent is.
7: Well, I appreciate the clarification, but I just thought it was a very interesting Mm -hmm. point when we're trying to determine the impact. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh, Ms. Dixon. I mean, Ms. Whitworth. Excuse
1: me. Sorry.
8: Um, I recall yesterday your preceding comments talking about don't try to draw conclusions of how this scoring uh, will or might affect various classes, uh, and I understand now why you, you made those statements, because I, I did do a little analysis of uh, of the five categories, uh, more specifically looking at the rural areas of C and D categories. Um, and to no surprise, I guess, uh, the C and D categories, uh, pervasively, uh, dominated the bottom ten samples that you used. Now, uh, I don't know what the C and D categories did in the lower half versus the upper half, but I do think that we need, as we look at making those independent decisions that the Secretary talked about, we do need to understand that, as as much as we're trying to make this not a biased matrix, it is biased. It has to be because of the very nature uh, of the things we're measuring. For instance, uh, in, in congestion, there are only two that are C and D that are in the top ten. In safety, there are only there's six. In accessibility, there's zero. Um, in economic development, there are five, and in environmental, there are six. But if you, I mean, there are three. But if you look on the bottom ten, those numbers are are vastly larger. And there are all these are projects that have been done, approved, and I suspect in those areas are very important projects to those specific areas. So this is the danger. Of trying to weigh importance with a mathematical, uh, matrix that we're required to do. My point is, <clears throat> we need to keep this in mind. <clears throat> As these new, new projects come forward, uh, there will be a need for, for, for advocates around the table to explain why if if this project uh, doesn't score well, it's an important project to those districts that we represent.
2: Well, I point out, I think that's why 1887 came in. Half the monies go directly now to the districts. They're only competing within the district. And I suspect that this board at the state level are going to really be charged with those major projects. You know that connect regions. I'm not saying that's the case, but I think that's the way things are going to come down. And that was the reason why we wanted to make sure monies went right to districts. Exactly. They're only competing. So, so yes, think at the end of the day, House Bill 2 on a statewide basis only impacts 27.5 percent of all the construction monies each year, because 45 percent go right to for good state of good repair to the districts, and the other 27.5 percent goes to the districts. So I want to just, you've got to keep putting that in context. I mean, we're talking about less than 30% of the money, which probably is going to be, you know, these bigger projects are going to score pretty daggone high, I would guess. And, and, and we are charged with a statewide connectivity. I'm not suggesting that, but that's probably the way they're going to fall down. We're going to need two, three, four hundred million dollars million at a pop for some of these larger projects. So... And I think that's key. That is still our job. Our job is not to fund just every project in every district. And I, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I mean, I that, but I think we, we recognize that because that's why the money goes to eight, 27.5% half of it goes there. Our job is to make sure we have a statewide transportation network. So just just throw that out. And, and so you, you, you're right, if everything, if we hadn't have done 1887, I think exactly. I mean, that, that's what I was. I think we could have devolved it. It's back to how do we finagle, Let's get money to the district. We're really now, as a district representative uh, and at large, you now have monies at the district and you're getting to compete against those projects within your district that are similar scoring the whole bit, and you get to make those decisions. So in that, but so I think uh, I think uh, 1887 really was. If you needed, we heard that loud and clear when we went around the Commonwealth. Loud and clear. So, but at the end of the day, we really are talking about we're talking 27.5 percent of all our construction monies that will be if you want to put a project will be competed statewide. And my guess is the larger projects going to rise to the top simply because of the very nature of of them.
1: Chairman, yes, in response to Mr. Dixon. <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, you got, that's too much burden. <laughs> Uh We won't go there. Um, I think it, we still have the prerogative on this board uh, to advocate and to make decisions that aren't necessarily always strictly tied in to the objective analysis. Uh, because if you start to go completely objective analysis. Why are we sitting here? Right. Exactly. You know, it's, it's really for us to make the case uh, for a particular project and sometimes recognize that it. it might have scored low, but in the, in the analysis of the whole Commonwealth, it's still important to that district, and we have to respect and recognize that amongst each other. So I hope that's never taken away, and I don't think the intent of this law is to just make this totally objective.
8: Now, I understand everything said. I was simply laying in the bed uh, that my friend from Bristol here is going to have to be a good advocate.
5: Well, uh, I, I think we could also say that category C and D make up about 80% of the landmass in the state of Virginia. Yeah.
10: Uh, and Mr. Chairman, if I could add, also these top 10 scores you're seeing in each section are the raw scores. So yeah. I believe yesterday Mr. Tucker made reference to there was a project that was in the bottom 10 on a particular category. When we get to the end here, you're going to see it in the top 10 overall. Yeah. And so remember, that's just the aggregate benefit. It's not the benefit for the dollar spent. And I think when we get to these last few slides here, Mr. Dick, uh, sure. Mr. Whitworth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, really um, You'll see. Uh, You may not see the same (laughs) dynamic play out as we look at the the tops and the bottoms of the, uh, you know, overall scores, looking at the relative and HB2 cost. Okay. Continue on, Mr. Uh, The next uh, section of the economic development factor area is the intermodal access. And again, this is currently weighted at 30%, though we're going to move that down to 20 as we move reliability into this metric. And what we've done here is there's kind of three things we're examining. And it's really focused on goods movement and intermodal access. So are you improving direct access or uh, improving a facility approximate to a distribution facility, an intermodal facility or manufacturing site? Are you improving a designated STAA truck route, which is something that's a federal designation that kind of signifies the major truck routes uh, throughout the nation? Or are you also improving kind of access around or directly to the Commonwealth's uh, aviation sites, the airports, or the ports, including inland ports uh, in the Commonwealth. And then what we're going to do again is to look at when we make these improvements, scaling it based on the tonnage that is anticipated to, be, to benefit from that improvement. And we get a, there's a lot of different national data sources we're relying on right now to provide us that research. Uh, Mostly of it being kind of this thing called TransSearch, which is a nationally uh, provided tool that gives you the different types of tonnage by mode on given corridors uh, across the country. And so, if you take a look here, you can see the top uh, 10 projects. Their raw score, Um, looking at uh, economic development here, and actually the very top one is one of the ones I talked about earlier, where there's an interstate that's being widened for about four and a half miles, and then what's happening is there's a lot of growth on that uh, kind of parallel uh, primary roadway that is was there before, and you know this improvement does help it, but a lot of it was already kind of taking place which again led us to go back and look at how we should revise that kind of classification. And then you see, uh, you know, kind of the top one there for the intermodal access was one that really addresses some bridges and a freight bottleneck in a more uh, rural part of the Commonwealth in a Category D area. Uh,
5: Moving on to the next one, so are you saying that the score here on the top this number, project number 11 led you to change how we did things, so this is, this is no longer the top
10: project? No, no, we, we changed it, and this is still the top project. Okay. Um, it was, so right now, again, remember how everything is relative yesterday. So if you see some of these other scores, sure. that 52 below it, prior to that modification, I believe, was something closer to a 20 or 25. And okay. uh, Mr. Tucker, if he was here, could give you the exact number. I'm kind of pulling it okay. out of thin air, but that's generally what was happening. And then if you look over at the, uh, the next slide, you see a lot of projects, and again, some of these scored better in some of the other categories, but they didn't, they just didn't do very much either for goods movement or, you know, nearby economic development. As we talked about in kind of the summary slides, there's projects, there's no project that scored really high in all categories. Most projects did really well in one to two, and the, the ones that scored really high got about three, but no one did well in every category area, and we just had some projects in this 38 that did very little to facilitate new or expanded economic growth or goods movement. Uh, So some of the challenges that we have here is again just really quantifying this our lack of ability to draw the causation between the improvement and the you know economic growth that's coming in there's also going to have to be a very very strong quality assurance quality control um, process in this. Right now we had kind of district staff provide us this information and those aren't even like the local staff who in the future might provide this. So even when we used our own staff, we had kind of people who were trying to say, oh, no, count this extra growth. This is really going to happen. And we suspect that when we receive applications from MPOs, PDCs, and local governments, that that issue is going to become more uh, pervasive. And so we're just going to keep working with them to make sure that only, you know, growth that's benefiting from this development uh, is considered. One of the other issues that we've run into is there are some projects that may be proximate to a fair amount of new economic development but have almost no impact on that. And the example I would give you is there was a park and ride lot that was considered uh, in the pilot scoring that did relatively well under economic development. I went around and asked every member of the HP2 team, did you think this park and ride lot had any role in the economic development happening within these, you know, few miles near it? And the unanimous response was no, it did not. And so we need to go back and kind of make sure that certain types of projects particularly park and ride lots. like Those do a lot for congestion. Um, they can help with accessibility. We as staff do not believe they have an impact on economic development nearby. We just think in this one it was just kind of a fluke of how the process was put in place and one of the lessons learned from our pilot scoring process. Uh, the other thing is we need to uh, do some work in the coming months to make sure we have all the manufacturing, intermodal, and distribution sites identified. We have a pretty comprehensive list but uh, we think there's some gaps in it, so staff are working very hard right now using a multitude of resources to make sure we fill in those gaps before we start to score projects in the fall. Uh, uh, we have the environmental uh, factor area Again, uh, one of the things I want to talk about before we go through this is we've changed this measure pretty dramatically in the revised construct, and so right now there's only one metric that's being shown. In the future, there will be two. There will be that impact to cultural and natural resources, And so when you see this you're going to see some projects that have you know very few points because they may not have the air quality benefits but when we look at kind of the natural and cultural resources impact every project is going to get some form of points kind of moving forward from that based on the degree to which they uh, avoid or minimize impacts to cultural and natural resources so for the air quality uh, and greenhouse gas perspective we looked at whether or not the degree which a project helps promote non-SOV travel or reduces fr- uh, freight bottlenecks where there's a large amount of truck traffic. And what we've defined as a large amount of truck traffic is more than 8% of traffic and a uh, kind of congested bottleneck looking at the volume to capacity types of calculations that Mr. Tucker walked through yesterday. And then what again we do to scale this so we can divide by cost is for the non-SOV components we look at the amount of users, again have kind of the benefit or impact we expect the improvement to have. And for the truck bottlenecks, we look at the truck volumes as we kind of scale that to divide by the benefit. And so again, here are the top ten using this half of the environmental metric. Um, Right now, the uh, park and ride lot is the number one scoring project, and that's because there's a high number of non-SOV users, as well as it has transit, carpool, as well as kind of ITS and technology improvements, and so it does a lot of things to help facilitate that non-SOV travel. Uh, If you move over to the bottom ten, we have a lot of projects that simply did not address freight bottlenecks or help promote non-SOV travel. Again, I want to stress in the future you're not going to see a bottom 10 of all zeros when we add in that other measure because all project will be getting points under that other measure. And so I just want to really highlight that for the board that you're not going to see this type of outcome from the environmental measure score in the future when that other uh, factor is put in there. Uh, Some of the challenges uh, that we had here is just getting inputs from the applicants. And making sure that they can provide that you know accurate type of information and again the pilot scoring did not consider the impact of natural and cultural resources looking at you know whether or not it was a categorical exclusion an environmental assessment or a full-blown eis and then the number of acres of impacted land that just was not considered in this pilot because we we're still developing the measure at that time based on stakeholder feedback uh mr the board, the last factor area is the land use area um, before we get in this I just want to remind members of the board this is only applicable and category uh, uh excuse me waiting frameworks a and b and so again just as a reminder that's northern virginia fredericksburg richmond hampton roads charlottesville and the roanoke-salem tpo area. so those are the only areas where this metric as currently proposed is applicable and under this metric again we look at really trying to quantify what is the project doing help promote transportation efficient land use there's been a lot of discussion in the board uh yesterday and at past meetings about interconnected streets uh and you know, really promoting types of development that minimize the impact on the transportation network that's really the purpose of this kind of score here and so if you kind of want to think about the different factor areas, congestion is really focused on dealing with the issues we have today and expect to you know have from some of the growth that's in the pipeline this is about having some of that future growth Minimize its impact on the transportation network. So as we're trying to do reduce congestion, when that future growth comes in, it does, doesn't just undo what we did with our congestion-reducing investments.
5: Mr. Chair, Yes, Mr. <clears> Fellow. <throat> I'm really interested in this grid network thing, as you know. If you look at page 33 of the implementation policy guide, it says, is the project consistent with does the project support traditional neighborhood development design components as defined in section fifteen point two 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 three point one? is i haven't looked that up yet i will but um i have no doubt (laughs) does that does that is that where we're getting at that
10: factor mr chairman there's several ways where we're getting at that factor that is i think the most direct one that code reference refers to a section of code that was added in 2007 under House Bill 3202. That is the urban development area section of code that talks about locally designated growth areas that have a mix of uses interconnected streets is actually explicitly referenced in that. Um, And so that is really where we're drawing that direct connection. I would also say looking at kind of the regional uh, VMT uh, projections from those long-range plans the regions put together will also quantify that as well as looking at kind of infill development uh, kind of moving forward. Well, Mr. Chairman,
5: the reason it somehow goes a little bit back to the, to the, uh, uh, comments that we had yesterday about whether, in Northern Virginia, what, what percentage it ought to be is congestion. Um, and I just read the letter from, uh, Doug Minshew and the Speaker and everybody else, and they want to put it at 60%. That may or may not help them score on a statewide basis.
4: <laughs>
5: we don't know. Uh, and, you know, they have scored pretty strongly on economic development, for example, up here. They've scored pretty strongly on, on this aspect of it. And so, you know, I, I don't know. But one thing I am concerned about is if we just put all our money in congestion relief, it will just push the development further out. And if we don't hold some criteria here for development, we're going to see another set of cul-de-sacs out here west of of Dulles. You know, all the land flew over, and we're going to be back in the same situation in 40 years. And that's the concern I have. I I understand that they need congestion,
2: but we also have to plan. Well, I, I, I was going to uh, bring this letter up at the end, uh, but, oh, now, okay. but now since you've mentioned it, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's okay. Uh, and I, and I, uh, it does. The letter is addressed to me, and it's uh, from uh, Speaker How and, and seven or eight others uh, uh, it, uh, from this area, and, and one from Hampton Road to think the new uh, House of Transportation, Ron Bell and the Wave also signed uh, the letter. Um it employs. It, it asks the Charlotte Transportation Board to strongly encourage two things. They want to uh, believe uh, in Hampton Ro- uh, Hampton Roads in Northern Virginia, uh, and specifically, there's mostly from Northern Virginia, as you mentioned. Congestion should be 60 percent, and uh, I, I agree with all wholeheartedly. A lot of the concerns that you have in that regard. Uh, although Mr. Dyke and Mr. Grozinski did express opinions to move it up from the 35%. I think we should give consideration to that in that regard. Um, and also the second thing is, that, uh, back to the comment that Mr. Whitworth was sort of making that I responded to, is that imploring uh, or strongly recommending the Transportation Board really focus on what they consider our major projects. It's not supposed to be to take care of local roads planning. I'm sure I agree with all that, uh, but I want to put out there that the letter I'll put it in public comment. Make sure you all have copies of it uh, in that uh, uh, going forward, and respect uh, their their comments. Um, um, But I think House Bill 1887 again does address some of those because, as we talked about before, this money's going right to this district, and they'll be, uh, uh, even though we ultimately. Have to approve as a ctb the district will be making the recommendations on what project they want so i did want to i'm glad you brought it up i was going to bring that up i'll make sure it gets in public comment uh <laughs> but that is the letter uh that uh that they sent uh, we were very involved i know nick and i were very much in these discussions and uh i'm not exactly sure i agree with all the tenor but certainly I've, i value their input uh, and so well, i you look, guys so this have could
5: have, Secretary. if if uh um, if we move the, the congestion number up, which, you know, uh, um, maybe we want to move the land use number up.
4: Because
5: so, uh, right sure. now it's yeah, 10 but, yeah. or 15 or something, and maybe
1: we need to balance those two things out a bit. Mr. President, I think the, uh, the intent of the letter from the legislatures is uh, to try to coincide with the legislation as it was passed in the General Assembly with the concentration on congestion relief and the interpretation that 35% does not appear to be a concentration to those legislators who passed the bill or to the general public. Now, that's not, I'm not advocating going to 75% or higher than that because I think the case was made yesterday as we were flying around that uh, you know accessibility that we've talked about and land use certainly have a place and uh, you know deserve recognition maybe beyond some of the other factors uh, so that that is uh, what I interpreted as as the intent uh, and Jim could speak to that too or Scott. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree
3: that. that we probably need to uh, focus a little bit more on land use Now with that number is, I think we need to talk about it. But I, I, I still think though we need to send a clear message on the congestion front. That's why I made the comments I did yesterday.
2: Yeah, and I, I and I, I certainly agree with that. I mean I understand where it's coming from in, in that regard. I think that's absolutely right. Um as you know we basically are let, it, let the locals give us input for you to decide uh, in terms of how their categories and how their rankings and the whole bit. So, I think this is important to, for them to weigh in, uh, in in that regard and how they understood the legislation. So that's why I want to make sure it was known to you and uh, everybody uh, consider that as we go through these.
3: Sure, Chast- so we'll have more discussion on this, but I, I have to. I just I concur with William's point. If we overweight congestion, we just start the cycle over and over and over, and end up with land use policies further out driving our need to make congestion based decisions in the future
11: uh mr connors i will point out the speaker has been a big proponent of land use in transportation i think 3202 came from him mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think he's asking us to strike a balance and mm-hmm. not to go overweight one way or the other because he's been a big proponent as of last third network big proponent of land
2: and I actually believe the balance is what's needed for the, uh, not only the policy, but in terms of the the raw scoring, and that's another, that's what I was only pointing out. That's why we'll have this workshop, and Ms. Freeland made the point. I mean, yes, uh, but then again, if you do that uh, and it uh, doesn't score the project you really want, I mean, you it just, you've got to consider. That that's, that's all I'm suggesting. But I did want to make this public, and everybody understand the concerns of the his General Assembly members that uh, were supportive of House Bill 2 and actually Speaker Howe was the
6: patron of House Bill 2. So, John here.
10: Um, so Mr. Chairman uh, you can see here on the slide the various factors that were considered uh, using the land use score a lot of them are focused on some of the issues that Mr. Fralin has raised and they talk about really are we kind of creating activity centers where development can take place in the future that will reduce the impact of that new growth on the transportation network. We're also looking at kind of regionally, as these metropolitan areas have developed their long range transportation plans, have they done it in a way where they've been able to strike a balance between their future growth and the transportation resource they have to try and reduce per capita vehicle miles traveled again, demonstrating that they've got a better jobs to housing balance. Or that they really succeeded in this kind of activity center strategy to reduce the impacts of this new growth on the transportation network. I think one of the key things um, about House Bill 2 and also with this land use aspect is even with the revenue package from uh, 2013, we're never going to have enough resources to really build or address all the needs that are out there, and so we need also trying to create uh, encouragement or incentives for some of these regional uh, areas and localities to think about ways they can accommodate their future growth in a less uh, capital intensive transportation way, kind of moving forward. We also uh, have something in here about the access management plans, and that's really a regulation that was put in place also as a part of House Bill 3202, which deals with, on our major corridors, making sure we don't kind of degrade their performance by having, you know, four entrances to an Exxon. At a major intersection where you have those turning movements which causes accidents and congestion with people slowing down and speeding up uh, we left this in to talk about it with the board but as we looked at the pilot scores we're not sure this is necessarily the most appropriate measure for this place as it's kind of you either have the plan or you don't and right now we have a regulation that applies these plans to all the major roadways and so it's kind of ended up being a default point provider and raising up projects that may don't actually drive at the rest of the land use aspects of this measure. The other thing that we've done here is we've scaled this by non-SOV users and I want to say to the board that as staff we're not sure that's actually the right thing to do this on. We just kept it with that for the pilot testing because we didn't have time to go back and examine other options but we think it might actually be more appropriate to look at the amount of both commercial and residential development uh, in an area where this uh, improvement is serving, rather than the number of people not driving, because even in these activity centers, you're going to have driving, you're going to have walking, you may have transit usage. I don't think it's appropriate to necessarily focus on who's not in the car, but rather than the amount of growth that's happening there, because what we need to do is have more growth happen in areas that's less transportation intensive or more efficient uh, in the way that it impacts the transportation network.
1: Mr.
9: Casperts? Nick, are there other demand-based metrics that could be included in the land use uh, evaluation?
10: So, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Casperts, this is another measure that was tough, um, like economic development, but not for the same reasons. The really tough part with the land use metric uh, is we have a paradigm in Virginia, and for all the local government folks in the room and watching at home, we're not looking to change that. Um, but where the state controls the vast majority of transportation investments, and the local governments are solely responsible for the land development patterns that the transportation network is supposed to be serving, and so we, we've been trying to come up with ways to kind of create those types of incentives moving forward. And we think the metrics that are there are maybe some of the better ones that we have. Uh, I'm sure there there may be some other ones we can come up with in the coming months, but we don't have any other other ones today that we would recommend to the. We really think focusing on having that kind of uh, walkable mixed use or denser types of development where appropriate um, is the right type of thing to include. And again, it's not appropriate in all places. It's really in certain nodes that are well served by transportation access, both transit and highways. Ms. Bellhut?
7: Thank you. I just want to make sure I understand what you said about the access management plans. Is, do most of our major quarters have one, have an access management plan?
10: Uh, Mr. Chairman and Ms. Valentine, they they don't all necessarily have individualized plans that have been developed through a discrete planning process. Some of them, like 29, do have more detailed plans, but uh, the commissioner actually has what's known as access management regulations that currently apply to all interstates, principal arterials, and I believe minor arterials throughout the Commonwealth. And so by virtue of that regulation, they're all subject to a plan restriction. It's just some are personalized and some are not. They're just default under that regulation, so it kind of ended up being points everyone got, whether or not the project was otherwise driving towards the outcome this factor area is supposed to look at.
6: Okay. Oh, One more yep.
5: before we leave land use. Um, I, I understand that VDOT
1: uh, gets a crack when a, when, a, when a locality passes a comprehensive plan, VDOT gets a crack to look at it and comment i guess
5: right. on it that's correct um and with this new uh formula i think it's the first time that land use is going to be rewarded or penalized i mean it's i mean the way we were awarded projects before it was kind of looked at but i mean it's going to be actually analyzed under this bill which is a good thing yeah. and it seems to me that v dot would do a, a localities of service by when they look at those plans and not give them a first review, but actually say, "If, if you pass this plan, it's not—it's going to hurt you." To when you you know give an analysis of those comprehensive plans and how they're going to work with this new process, because all of a sudden they really matter. Well, they do, and, and uh, if they should not compliant sure. with it. If they change their mind later; it, they're going to score really poorly on this.
2: Well, I think. This is the first time, I think, with this, that there's actually some teeth into the VTrans process about uh, land use planning and stuff, because you're right. And I think that's really some of the inherent uh, uh, positive things about House Bill 2. Not only them, but I, at public hearings and heard from our VDOT engineers, well, that's not going to score well under House Bill 2. We can do it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's exactly the, what we're looking for the long term. It will change habits. I mean, yeah, and maybe some, uh, we'll have to take a look at how it does, but I mean, that, that's the intent, is to really tie together. And we didn't show it here, but if we, if we did every of the transportation uh, board meeting hearings, the circle, it now ties together VTRANS, allocating the money and spending the money under 1887. I mean, in other words, they are interconnected. And uh, if you want your project to do well, you, you need to figure out how that they are connected. I agree hundred percent. Ms. Beltosh. Um,
7: are access management plans part of comprehensive plans? The,
9: the, the comprehensive plans, typically, they have a transportation element uh, that will, will guide the county in terms of where they want various types of, of development to occur and what types of transportation improvements are needed. And one of the challenges, as I'm hearing this in Virginia, is that the typical land use pattern in Virginia is what I call strip zoning, commercial zoning, along your primary and your other major arterial corridors. And this is, you see this phenomenon all over Virginia, where it's uh, U.S. route whatever, you'll see these uh, uh, strip zoning 600 feet, 1,000 feet off the center line of the roadway. And it it provides, uh, it it makes it significantly difficult to manage that that arterial road as the commercial development occurs. some of the areas are really beginning to try to cluster land use in northern Virginia. Uh, some areas, parts of Richmond, even parts of Hampton Roads and, and the Roanoke area. But that, that continues to be the challenge. When we talk about access management, uh, if a person owns a piece of land along a primary highway and it's not limited access, ultimately they're going to get a commercial interest that gets configured we have some some uh, uh, control but in the end we can't say you cannot have an entrance onto this roadway if if that is your piece of land um, we ultimately what happens is it goes through an exception process and the like so by going all the way back to the comprehensive plan and really reinforcing the idea of of integrating the land use and the transportation system uh, it, can, it can really help us and relieve some of the issues that we have today along our, our uh, primary quarters.
7: Because, you know, in many ways it's protecting the assets that we currently have. And that's something that regardless if you're an A, B, C, or D, you know, working, trying to perhaps em- emphasize that or reinforce it in comprehensive plans because, you know, in the long run it keeps us from creating – you know the cul de sacs and just expanding all of those development.
9: And, and li- linear commercial development is the most, again, most challenging for us because of the, it's it's clobbering the the arterial system.
5: Yeah, make, make, yes, make sure.
9: Sure. because I agree with uh, Mr.
5: Valentine, and I think that I've used cul de sac too much because there's nothing inherently necessary. Nothing like here, we're not going to have a cul de sac. But what, what the point is, is there has to be more than one access point for a hundred house development. You know, where it's cul-de-sac, 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 dump it onto, you know, 50, uh, around 50. So what, what, what I think is we have, instead of giving them one access, maybe we give them three, <laughs> you know, so, they're, so it divides it up, or maybe we, we, we give them some on the back and some on the front, so there's, there's, there's a, an outlet, you know, and I assume that's what we're talking about
9: get yeah, parallel road networks or interconnectivity between uh, compatible development types. And, and frankly, the other part is putting compatible development types next to each other, not putting commercial next to residential that then sort of forces, well, we can't make this physical connection because now commercial traffic will drive through the residential neighborhood. Right. It's, it's that, that interaction. And, and the parallel street concept and, and multiple access points and alternative access points can, can provide um, a two-lane highway with very few access points can carry considerable volumes of traffic um, but when you start adding these entrances onto it um, it gets it gets worn down pretty quickly so um, again land use patterns I think that this is a this is an area where land use is controlled by local government but we're responsible for the highway system and there's this, theres a, there's, a, there's a difficulty there and again it's my entire career, it's been a difficult um, balance. If you look at when we flew
2: over yesterday, the problem is there's not a lot of room for parallel road networks up here. I mean, you, you, you can look there. They're all, you'd have to cut through housing development after housing development to put the parallel road system in place. That's one of the challenges that's faced up here. And the point that if that's continued, that'll continue to be because you only have a very few major routes and then we go to widen them, it causes lots of problems because they're taking homes and different things. So it's a difficult situ- difficult problem. Uh, but it, it was very evident yesterday flying over, putting in parallel roads. There's not a lot of opportunity for it up here and without destroying many, many homes. Mr. Whitworth.
8: Uh, I certainly agree that the critical issue right here in this uh, Metropolitan area is is, is uh, congestion, and we need to address it. And but I do think that this is the first opportunity that we've had to address an issue that has led to the present crisis, and that is inappropriate land use. So I would I would certainly be uh, comfortable and encourage some incremental value on land use. Uh, because uh, this is the thing that created the problem that we're having now to fix.
10: So Mr. Chairman, Mr. Board, if you take a look at the scores here, uh, this is based on the current, the way it was done in the pilot scoring. Again, staff, we, we want to recommend changes to you on this. So the top scoring project here was a project to uh, add a general purpose and HOV lane. Um, to an interstate facility at the edge of a metropolitan area, um, it mostly scored the highest because it had an access management plan and a high number of SOV users. Um, it did not actually get points to a lot of the kind of land development aspects there. So that's again, my staff are kind of going to be recommending to the board that we remove that access management component and then consider what what are the what should we be scaling by? Because I, I do think that even in these activity center types of areas that are more transportation efficient uh, land use there's going to be driving and so we shouldn't be not considering that so maybe we need to be looking at the residential units and kind of commercial square footage but staff would like to take the next few days and provide some recommendations to the board on that but we did want to show you how we scored it because that's what we've been talking about up until this point but we did see some deficiencies in the scoring into the pilot testing and with the board's kind of interest in this we'd just like to have another few days to give you some additional recommendations. Mr. Johnny, we
2: have about 20 minutes for public comment, so I'd like to get to the scoring if you could, because uh, uh, we probably need to wrap this up before that and come back in instead of having you come back up again. So.
10: Yes, sir. So I just I've jumped through a few slides here, so we're at the scores. These are the raw scores. So here are the top 10 types of scores, and as, as Mr. Whitworth talked about, you see a fair amount of A's and B's in the top raw score this before we divide by cost and you see a mix of um, different types of roadway improvements, some of the transit uh, improvements and things to that nature. Can move to the bottom 10. um, and as Mr. Whitworth did note earlier, you see there's a lot more C's and D's there. Um, also as Mr. Matney said there, that, that does represent a much larger part of the land area of the Commonwealth. So there were were more C and D projects in this 38 that got evaluated moving forward. And again, this is just the raw score here. Now what I want to do is really kind of, here's where we're getting into the relative scores. This is where we're dividing that raw score by cost, and this is total cost, and I really want to draw the board's attention to the highest scoring project, and that is a very small project in a rural area whose raw score, gave it a rank of 29 out of 38, but once you divide by its cost, which was only $900,000, that far and away was the best bang for the buck out of these 38 projects. And so as we kind of talked about earlier, the raw scores, you know, the aggregate benefits, but what the law tells us to examine are what are the benefits per dollar spent. And so if you start to look through this, you kind of see a broader mix of area types. So all the weighting frameworks are represented and it would staffs kind of opinion that there's not more or less of one type versus another. So the number one project is an area type D and it's a reconstruction, you know, of an intersection. The next project is uh, some expansion buses that, again, rely on the metro system, which really bumps up their score there, and that's in a category type A. The next one is the commuter lot, also in a category type A. Um, then we move to uh, kind of an improvement to a local road to help uh, improve the flow at an interchange, and that's in a category type D there and then you know we moved to B, uh, C's and there's a few B's moving down there. Um, for anyone who's in a category type B, I do want to say we had the least number of projects in B, so you're just going to see less B's in that. The B only applies in three areas and so there just weren't a ton of projects in this 38 within the weighting framework of B. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Rosen, you just noticing that
8: to go to that, I um, uh, did notice that on the, the final results that the B's, I mean there are fewer projects, but the B's also seem to be much lower in terms of their scoring um, <coughs> relative to many of the others. Um, you know, these are the, the bottom 10 there at the bottom. It, are we finding there's something within that category that's going to need to be adjusted um, to make those those cate- the, the um, entities that are falling in this category is more competitive? Because this doesn't seem to show that B is as competitive with the others.
10: Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Rosen, at this time, staff don't feel that it's shown that way, but what we can do is to continue to examine projects that might fall in category type B just to see if we keep getting um, that type of outcome in there, just looking at these 38. I think there were only three or four B projects, and again, it's just because there's only three areas that three area. where the B area is
2: applying. And you should not read anything. This is a small sample, which is scoring. You should not read it into... The fact that it's in one area or the other. It's, it really, this helps to take a look at if you raw score versus cost. I mean, I think this clearly shows a, the big changes are not between classifications. The big changes come between raw score and cost. I mean, I mean, that, and I think, let me just read one point. I want to read this letter that we got. And this is a critical point here. The last sentence in the last paragraph is to what they considered is is: um, the Commonwealth is ultimately responsible for a statewide transportation network, and while local projects should be measured against the CTB-recommended plan, the six-year improvement plan ultimately must be for projects of greatest statewide significance, not a collection of local projects. This clearly is saying that the project that scored the highest probably should not be considered at the statewide level. Now, chances are it would be at the district level, but I want to point out to you uh, that uh, I just want to point out, and I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong, but that's where we're being encouraged. So I, I, uh, I I'm not saying it's right or wrong, guys. I am saying we need. That's a. Uh, there are differences of opinions, uh, of, uh, opinions, and um, this is a clearly a a, a very. Uh, different view in terms, I should say different view, that we've espoused here. So I just want to make sure that their view is heard, but also what the ramifications
1: are with that. Yeah, Mr. Garcin. Yes, I, I have a question for Nick, but commenting on that, it probably would be appropriate to have a further dialogue to, to, to find out if that's truly going to be a litmus test. Right. I think that uh, because if we don't do that we're just going to be back before the ga next year you know with revisions to this uh, to to what we're trying to do nick uh, explain to me the difference of hb2 cost again and total cost with some of the uh, different numbers you see where the total cost is lower than the hb2 cost
10: some of these rankings uh, Mr. Grzynski, the, to- the total cost is just that. It's the all-in cost of the project, regardless of whether it's the specialized programs that the state and federal, that are federal funds that are exempt, local money, you know, money from a-, a regional entity or any of that nature. That is that as well as the state funds that'd be subject to House Bill 2. That's the total cost. When we get to the HB2 cost, we exclude things like the Highway Safety Improvement Program, the CMAC program, um, the regional surface transportation funds controlled by the MPOs over two hundred thousand, local revenues and things of that nature. So that, that's the difference between those two columns. Um, and then just kind of also just want to remind people again when we move forward and we have these scorings, we're gonna have them in those two categories. The high priority projects program by law is supposed to be focused on core statewide significance and the metropolitan networks, and then that district grant program is really for any type of need identified in the V-Trans process from safety to local growth areas to regional networks and core statewide significance. So I do think a lot of these things we're hearing now with that change in law, which becomes effective this July 1, you'll start to see these things kind of work their way through. Mr.
5: Chairman, I, Mr. Brown. I'd like to make a, uh, an observation, make sure I understand it's correct, but um, I understand there's going to be a, a little bit of a change in the... In, um, the Statewide competition for dollars is going to be based on um, quarters statewide significance, and like, like just said. But the six-year plan that VDOT puts out is interstate primary, secondary, all across Virginia. It's not we're, we're not limited, nor, in my opinion, should we be limited to just using quarters, spending money on quarters statewide significance because it's a state transportation plan, and a, you know now the General Assembly has the prerogative to change that but but that's not what our role is right now and um and i think to change that and to give localities, for example the ability to 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 do that would lead to further balkanization i mean we already are looking at a little bit of balkanization based on the regional transportation line if we start doing changing how the six-year plan is put together you know i mean I'm not, I'm not in the legislature so they can do what they want to do and the government just decided it or not. But, right. but uh, you know, I, I, I'd be concerned about
1: that.
2: I, I, uh, I, I kind of heard that coming in from
1: that letter. Yeah,
2: I just wanted to make sure I put it out there. I think Ms. Krasinski's uh, suggestion is right. I will set up meetings to discuss and, and present what we think. But I, I did want to make sure that their letter was put out and point out some of the ramifications. And I'm not saying they're good or bad. It's just will cha- it will change the result that's, uh, I think, something that, uh, uh, in deference to them, I wanted to make sure that it was heard uh, and that we have a discussion on it. So, uh, Mr. Wentworth. Uh,
8: Nick, explain to me this little project where we're really talking about $30,000 HB2 cost. In the future, would that
10: be part of this conversation here? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ms. Worth, I'm not sure we'd end up seeing an example that had such a, so, so low of a cost and that little of HB2 eligible money. What I think happened in this particular example is the product was underway, experienced a cost overrun, and the state applied some money I'm sorry, that I would... i I
8: hear you.
10: I believe what happened in this project um, is that it was already underway, experienced cost overruns of, of around $30,000, and what happened is the state added what would now be HB2 money to what was you know probably a safety project to cover that cost increase and keep the project moving forward. And so I don't think you're going to see a project that costs less than a million dollars and then has $30,000 of HB2 money. Uh, I wouldn't think so. so and, and
8: if these numbers are really $90 million versus $30 million, I doubt seriously if it has been at the top of the chart. Is that correct?
10: I'm sorry, can you say that
8: again, sir? If the total cost had been $90 million rather than 900000 It would have been at the the very bottom. It would not anywhere be close to the top of the chart because it's at the bottom of the chart uh, on the raw score. That is so I really but don't think this is a good example of how you can move from the bottom to the top.
4: Well,
2: I'm not sure. I totally agree because cost, you know, is what clearly is driving House Bill 2. Now, I'm not saying that project. In you know, other words, that we are we're directed to get the biggest bang for the buck with our judgment. And uh, I think part of House Bill 2 is uh, looking at how we can reduce the cost of the project. And if you can reduce the cost of the project, it's going to score better. So I don't – I think that uh, – and I I think that's the real value of it. I mean, we just bring out the interchange at at 630. We've reduced it $50 million. And yet, now we have a plan that has the utility that the other one was going to do. For 50 million dollars left, I really believe that was the intent of this legislation besides as to how do we get more efficient with our limited dollars. So, uh, it may not, may or may not be a good example, but, but cost is a big determinant in how these projects are going to score. Now we're going to give you the gross cost and the net and I can see how that, uh, you know, can can skew maybe the thinking depending on how you put it in, or, or you have a different opinion. But if we, you know, maybe the benefits aren't really great, but if it doesn't cost a lot, now you may need to make the decision. There's a screening process that Nick hadn't talked about. You get screened to make sure the project even should be something to score. right? I mean, there's a screening; it's got to meet certain. But if it does, I mean, I, you know, I mean, cost is going to be a big driver of, of this. Now we have to keep in mind, you know. Our whole objective is to make sure we have a coordinated network and nobody's getting away from that as part of the screening. But to think that uh, the whole idea is to incentivize the least, fitting the purpose and need with, the, with a cost-justified solution. And, it's to, and it really is encouraging VDOT to come up with designs that meet that that may not be the most expensive So it it is. I mean, I I think that's inherent conduct. I I hear you. I'm just talking
8: about this specific project. I'm not sure. There are going to be very few projects, I think, that we're going to be looking at that are going to go from the worst score to the top score, unless we're going to be talking about $30,000 projects.
2: Don't know. Could be, could be, but I don't know. uh, Because uh, it's all relative relative, and... uh, and I do believe there are some, look, we uh, put in, what is those, uh, the flashing lights uh, out at uh, yeah, Chevron. Chevron, and you know, we were going we to straighten the S-curves up, and we've reduced the accidents uh, almost uh, in half significantly. significantly by just signing it differently. And I think that's part of it, because big part of House Bill 2 is also technology <laughs> and driving no. Well, no, Mr. Chairman, that's on
4: eighty-one.
5: It could be. might have gone to
2: the meddling there. No, 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 no. no, no. no. But but I mean, I that you're, mean, right. you're yeah. right. That, that, that was. Yeah, we are encouraged to how we can use traffic management technology. That's a big part of House Bill two. But we got I know we got and, and so,
10: Mr. Chairman, I could just to kind of so I I think Mr. Whitworth has a uh, you know point. We're probably not going to see many projects like this one with a thirty thousand hp two cost. But if you also look at project three, the last one on this slide, that actually was in the bottom 10 and now is in the top 10 when you divide by cost. And so it was, you know, 33 on raw score, but it's 10 once you uh, take that cost into account. So I think the broader point is cost plays a large role in what the overall score is going to be there. And just to kind of jump forward to some of the HB2 costs, you can take a look at what that does as well as we look at this. And on this chart, we have the raw score The relative score by total cost and the relative score by hb2 cost and you can see there are some changes um the top four stay the same though two and three reshuffle um the first one that changes that is um then that project i was just referencing which is 33 and its raw score when you divide by total cost it's 10th but because there was some local funding on this project that paid for about half of its cost it jumps actually from 10 to number five onto that. And again, moving forward, staff don't think that either the relative cost by total score or the relative cost by hp 2 score, we don't think you can see either one of those in a vacuum. We think you're going to need to see both of those scores. So you can understand its benefit towards its total cost, as well as resources we might otherwise be leveraging to help us deliver those projects and bring more local and other non-state resources into some projects we're advancing.
2: Okay. Mr. Rondo, we have more questions. Five minutes, we have to start. Uh, so what I'm going to do, I was hoping we'd finish it, but I don't think we should drop this. I think we should let Mr. We let Mr. Donahue come back after public comment to, to more questions on this. So I'm going to suspend this uh, right now um, um, so we can take a few-minute break because I don't want to be in deference to them. There's many speakers. I'll, we told them 10 o'clock. So we'll take a um, uh, five-minute break. We'll suspend the workshop session now. We're only going to go into formal session to hear a public comment, and then I'm going to suspend that and come back here because there's at least one presentation we have to hear before we can vote. So we're going to uh, – Mr. Johnny, you'll come back and just go back on the slides. We're going to take a five-minute break. At 10 o'clock, we'll go into formal session uh, and go into public comment, and then we'll continue after that. So we're in – suspension right now.